Welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour. I'm here with my good buddy, buddies, Luke Edwards and Dalton Lomax. Hello. Hello. Some interesting guys who I, I have the pleasure of working with. And uh, I wanted Luke to come on here because he's, uh, he's got a pretty good philosophy in life and <laughs> achieves things and uh, gets on Facebook and argues with one-eyed rappers for me on my behalf. <laughs> She wasn't born with one eye, though. No, so I want to make sure that delineation is out there. She was not born with one eye. Therefore, it'd be harder to uh, get into debates with her. She lost her eye yeah. in the ghetto that she defends so wholeheartedly. And I got to bring that up to her. Because it, when you're a product of the environment to which you're defending, at some point, you got to stop. And I think you got to look at that, that yeah. environment and say, well, maybe I shouldn't defend this anymore. Maybe in order to get a better solution, we can't defend something just because out of zeitgeist. Say, yeah. oh, well, this is the hood I grew up in. Who gives a shit? I yeah. think if somebody wanted to bulldoze eight mile, it wouldn't have made the movie any less interesting, no. but it would make a lot better situation for people that live in that area. There's too many. Yeah, there's, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting thought, man. And I think, I think the the best way to make a difference usually anyways is with business. I think it's like you could, you can stand there and argue with people on Facebook about the injustices of your neighborhood and everything, or you could, you know, go create a business and try to change the community. Well, right. And that's what I was trying to tell that person. And, uh, it's, I'm employing 35 people Yeah, as a small business owner. What is she doing? Nothing. She's a rapper. She's rapping. Yeah. Telling us how. About her hood. Yeah. Telling us about her hood. And, and that's the thing at the end of the day. And I, and I think you have to accept people for what they are. Somehow we're in a really strangely polarized world um, through everything with Fox News and CNN to where everybody, instead of being judged on your individuality, like it originally was intended, we're all judged as collective. So groupthink allows this whole collective thing to be, uh, to be attributed to everybody. It says, Oh, well you, you are part of this because of this, you know, Oh, you're a black gay person. You must think this, this, and this. Yeah. Well, says who, Yeah. you know, and I think that's the biggest issue. And when these people start uh, becoming an echo chamber for ratings, I think that destroys any individuality. Yeah, I agree. So let's, let's kind of do uh, a rewind Luke, because you're okay. always a small business businessman i mean you kind of were <laughs> i think i was yeah you always were but i think it's it's fascinating because i don't know your full story because i uh -oh. i just thought you played poker before no no and then it, the it, other it, day <laughs> you're like telling some story about being on warp tour and yeah yeah crazy ass band stories so there's let's, a let's lot take of... it way back because i know you, you you were you grew up a poor dairy farmer very poor so okay so it starts off i mean i don't know how far we're taking it back so i'll take it back from my, you know, where I started becoming somebody yeah. when I started to develop my individual character and, uh, and what it was, uh, you know, five, six years old, my parents got a divorce, seemingly the, the normal thing for everybody in the eighties, uh, parents got a divorce, dad got remarried, my mom, uh, she eventually got remarried. So I, there's myself, I was the youngest, I had two older uh, brothers, and then when my dad got remarried, he had two kids. When my mom got remarried, she had three kids. So quickly, I'm the Brady Bunch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so when you're the, the younger child, there's you sort of have a role within the family. Yeah. You know, whether people want to make it up or not, you know, whether you're the oldest, the firstborn, the middle, the youngest, whatever, there's always a role. 
well, it got interesting with me because when my mom got remarried and she had three more kids, guess what? Now I'm the middle kid. Yeah. You know, so the role was changing as I was 10. And, you know, when you're 10 years old, you think you have things figured out. When you're 11, you think you have things figured out. And you don't. You yeah. look back and and you just don't. But uh, going through that, there's a big transition. And the worst thing was that guy, I mean, they met under these this really weird mom was on a rebound. And uh, she met this guy. He pulled up in a BMW motorcycle. He had a nice beard, you know, nice flowing hair. You know, the guy's well kept and, you know, he, uh, my mom was always sort of a religious zealot, if you will. Um, and this guy was in his own type of, uh, uh, you know, ideology and, uh, he believed his own theologies, uh, if you will. And, but there's a thing that even we noticed, you know, my older brothers and I, and their two religions sort of clash. She was Southern Baptist. He was seven day Adventist and, they can't even figure out the Sabbath day together. Yeah. So, you know, just from our young selves, our young minds thinking like, how is this going to work? I mean, this is long before the days of match.com with 12 levels of compatibility or whatever, <laughs> you know, but even, uh, you know, me as a 10 year old, I'm thinking, well, shit, this doesn't work. Yeah. We go to church on Sunday. Now you want to marry a dude that wants to go to church on Saturday. That's fucked. And, and we knew it was going to fall apart. Um, but it didn't fall apart until she had three kids with him. And then he left because he felt like he was called to the seven day Adventist, like Tennessee membership. But that's that was convenient. only after, Oh, it's very convenient. Uh, oh, that's, I that's popped a, out three kids. Oh shit. Uh, my church is calling me. I'm sure God wants you to abandon your family. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's where it got interesting. So it, uh, yeah, God says many things and, <laughs> and to many people they interpret it. So, uh, he wanted to get in, involved with that. He wanted to go, but it was interesting because he wanted to take the kids. Yeah. He said, these are my kids. Um, which, you know, gets in a whole line of other debates, but, uh, my mom was fighting tooth and nail for these kids. And even though knowing that if this guy leaves, she will now be divorced times two. Now she will be raising six kids which as a single mom raising one kid is tough. Yeah. Near impossible. Yeah. Raising six kids by herself is like unheard of. And so knowing that she was still fighting for the kids. So I, I knew she loved us and it was one of those things that she was fighting tooth and nail. Well, here's where it gets really interesting. And here's where I started developing my way in life is, uh, and sort of my philosophies early on how I adapted them. Um, in order for him to get custody back then in, uh, in 91, I guess it was, um, the courts, they sided with the, the moms, the, uh, the maternal side of things, whether it's the grandma, the moms, they sided with them because women are naturally nurturers. Yeah. You know, um, they've done several studies with, uh, you know, chimpanzees, you know, putting dolls in front of female chimpanzees, putting trucks in front of male chimpanzees, and the mothers are always nurturing the, the female chimpanzees are always going after the dolls. So the courts adopted sort of that strategy of, okay, we're always going to side with the mom unless it gets really wild. So, um, I haven't told many people this, uh, but what really, I think going back started developing my philosophy on things was I saw the court work in a way and being manipulated 
And when I saw it being become manipulated by this guy, I then realized, you know, this, this blind lady of justice can be manipulated Yeah, because the blind lady of justice sees black and white. So now it's up to these guys that get paid hundreds of thousands a year, also known as lawyers to fight for these guys under a false pretense. Mm -hmm. And, and these guys in these suits, they don't give a shit about six kids. They don't care who it affects. They care about their client because that is who writes them the checks. Um, so at the time, my ex stepfather, he had, he had money. He had a good job. He was a, uh, he was a self-employed painter. Then in the uh, winter, he drove semi and he just banked all that money, just banked it. And, uh, it was pretty good for him. And at the time he hires a lawyer. I'm not going to mention his name because, well, obvious reasons. Um, he hires a lawyer and he says, I need to get me my kids, you know, these three kids, I need to get them down to Tennessee to this seven day Adventist commune, if you will. How do I do it? And his lawyer said, you need to, you need to make this environment to which they live so unsafe for these kids that the court has no choice but to send them out. That's bottom line. And he goes, well, how do I do that? You know, by, for all intents and purposes, she's crazy. My mom, like, I mean, and my mom is crazy for uh, what it's worth. Um, you know, but it was to the point where it was two crazy people trying to decide who gets custody of these three new kids. And knowing the court's going to side with the mom, even though she couldn't afford it, even though we'd be on food stamps and subsidies forever, even though we'd be indentured servants to the, this farmhouse we lived on, I'd be milking cows and building wood stove fires, you know, when other kids are going to school. Um, so long story short with that, it got to the point where they developed a narrative and uh, which brings me up to the other thing of why I get into false narratives. He developed a narrative to which the house was unsavory and unsafe at this point. And by the time he comes up with this theory with this lawyer, uh, my br older brother was already abused. He already moved on to my, my real dad's house. He was already over it. I mean, not, you know, being thrown into litter boxes because he didn't fill up ice trays, you know, something as stupid as that. Oh yeah. You did all the house, but you didn't, you forgot to do the pots and pans. So I'm going to throw you through a wall now. So his religion was really scattered. If you get my drift. Yeah. And uh, so he, so my older brother, he was already gone. My other brother, older brother, he was on his way out because he hated the abuse. He said, I, I got to get out of here. So he ended up moving to Colorado, to which he still lives. He, he wrote Ohio off, said, fuck it. I hate it. I hate everything it represents. He's gone. So now there's me. So now I go from the youngest child to the middle child to the oldest child. And now my mom's in a huge custody battle. And uh, the way that... Uh, him and this attorney came up to make my mom's house a, a liability was accused me of molesting my brothers. Whoa. That's yeah. Fucked up. It gets really fucked up. And so if you can imagine a 10 year old at the time, uh, you know, I was building, you know, my go-karts and I was working on all my mini bikes and, and you know, it's what I was doing. I was just always naturally mechanically inclined. I just loved working and tinkering with things. And, uh, and looking back, it was actually a way to get out of the house so I could get away from the abuse, get away from the drama, you know, so I had to build a mini bike to go down the street. And, it, you know, I was always skateboarding and doing this, that, and the other. Well, then I become a pawn in this custody battle. 
And next thing I know, I'm, uh, you know, I go from giving my little brother's rides on go-karts to being interviewed by the cops for a 24 hour period of time. And the laws have changed, but you know, this, this is going to tie into a point later on. I hope we get into this in this podcast about the hashtag me too stuff. Yeah. And about false allegations. Yeah. And of what this does to people. When I was 10, I, I was interviewed for 24 hours with a detective in Mansfield, 10 years old. And, uh, and I'm not going to name his name either, um, but I, I know it to this day. Uh, I don't know who my senior prom date was, but I know what that guy's name was. <laughs> you know, so that yeah, shows you the importance of what this was. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty traumatizing for a child. It was. And it's really irresponsible of adults. It was. And to this day, I still don't know if my mom believes me or not. Wow. But. I think there's a lot to be said by, I still have a good relationship with my family. Uh, my brother works for me. Yeah. You know, my sister, she worked for me and my other brother, he's a uh, mechanical engineer with SSOE. And so he's doing well and we still talk regularly. And so I don't think they ever bought into it, but they were so young that the mind can be manipulated. And when the attorney is, is, is the point man, of a, a hatchet job saying, I want these kids so bad. I'm willing to do whatever it takes in order to get them. And I get it as a father. I get it. I get it. You don't want to let your kids go, but it it's a weird platitude when you don't want to let your kids go as you're abusing your stepchildren. Yeah. So it's a weird thing for me to, to, to have. So let's go back to the interview that I had with, uh, with uh, detective in Mansfield, and it pretty much came down to this for 24 hours. My story didn't change. And, you know, I was always told even growing up as rough as I was that if you don't lie, you don't have to remember a convoluted story. Yeah. And for whatever reason, the detective thought that was near sociopathic behavior that my story did not change. There was no delineation that that is where it became real. So next thing I know I'm being locked up as a 10 year old getting ready to go in front of a juvenile court judge. And at this point they withered me down to the point. I said, I just want to get out of this room. I'm tired. I want to leave. And uh, so I pretty much signed a paper that said, I'm not consenting to doing any of this, but I want to leave and I'm consenting to a court ordered counseling until the time I'm 18. And I'm going to be a ward of the state until then. Wow. And that's the only way my mom could keep my, my younger siblings by me going through this court order counseling saying, I will get better. I will no longer molest people. And it, it was so fucking insane. Yeah. And allegations. Oh, well, without a doubt, it was, it was so insane that, I mean, as a 10 year old, I couldn't comprehend as a 35 year old. Now looking back, it's hard to comprehend, but that's when I started generating a lot. That's where my character started developing. Yeah. I started realizing there are narratives that are false. There are people that are out for their own good. And I learned a lot about life when other 10 year olds are going to school playing with Ninja turtles. I'm being drugged through a court system and it's a court system that so often is attributed toward poor people toward the hood. You're, you're in, in this environment. You're, you're in a cycle of, you know, you're in the system. You can't get out. And, and I heard all these things and naturally with this counseling that we did, 
it had a lot of other people that were hardened criminals. And with these people, there was, there was a fine line. I remember looking back, there was a fine line of the people in this counseling that I did for eight years. And looking back, it probably helped me because I do understand a lot more about my psychology yeah, and a lot, a lot more about sociology. It probably, in a weird way, provided an escape from the fucked up home situation. Too. Well, and, and because, it did. Because I can't imagine, I, I can only imagine, like, it'd be hard. It's like, Mom, how can you not trust me? Like, you're all I have now. Like, you know what I mean? And then it's like, so then it, you were forced at 10 years old to be, to be. The uh, whipping boy. Yeah, for- but also just the, that you, you knew, like, I don't have a choice. I'm the only one that can take care of me. That's correct. And, and it got really weird because even knowing that that sacrifice was made, not understanding the value of that sacrifice, it got to a point where I knew, okay, my mom gets to keep these kids if I do this. Yeah. I'm so tired. It's worth it, I guess. And then you go to court-ordered counseling. You, they pull you out of, of school. So everybody wonders. You know, all your te- teachers, they're wondering. Everybody's talking. Everybody's wondering, like, why is this kid leaving? And And quickly... I felt like I had a scarlet letter. Yeah. I, I, I felt like I had the star of David, you know, getting ready to go into some weird internment camp or some ghetto. And that that's when it really started to develop. I started getting a lot of anger, um, which looking back, it was probably justified. I'd say so. Right. Say so. Yeah. And uh, started getting a lot of anger. And then I wanted outlets for that. And I started martial arts when I was eight years old. And I found martial arts was a great outlet of that. And started reading and adopting a lot of uh, Middle Eastern philosophies on, on just you know, a, a sort of Zen, if you will, of bringing down the mechanism, clearing the mechanism. Yeah. How can this situation be so fucked up, and I can't change this situation? And that was a lot of those philosophies. How do I do this? So I got into a lot of uh, the the philosophies of Jeet Kune Do, Bruce Lee's stuff, uh, Aikido. Um, you know, sort certain, certain Middle Eastern philosophies like that. And that was more for how to, how to make it so I could control my anger. But then it also turned out when I was being, when I was wearing that scarlet letter, I found out that I'm also going to be the victim of bullying and the victim of this abuse from my ex stepdad, who at this point was no longer in the equation. But now instead of him, throwing me through walls now it was people at school picking on me hey why do you get to get out early on tuesdays and thursdays hey why why do you get to do this why do you get to do that and and i had no answer because i'm certainly not going to tell them well i was accused of molesting my brother and i mean i'm not going to do that and i couldn't even understand what that was so i developed my own personality um you know i spent lots of time there's lots of downtime at the uh the the dairy farm you know i'd go in at 5 a.m i'd milk cows to help pay for my mom's rent because we were so poor at that time and i would do things i'd mow the lawn mow their lawn i'd go out and herd the the sheep herd their steer um you know i would do certain things uh i would just do certain things to to ward off some of that and eventually it turned it turned from my stepdad being the abuser toward the school and the industry that was designed to protect kids was exploiting you. the infrastructure that was now set up to make me keep on failing. 
Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, as a poor kid going to school, you know, like we got free lunches and with our free lunches, you know, I didn't know what that meant. You know, I knew my dad was working. I only got to see him every other week. And when I got to see him, it was, it was vacation. So I sort of put it on myself that when I saw my dad, and my stepmom, everything was peachy back at home, you know, cause it was my escape. And I didn't realize why you get free lunches. I didn't realize any of the economics of, of, uh, you know, welfare. I just knew a yellow truck showed up once a week with, uh, government cheese, you know, some Cheerios that weren't called Cheerios. Cause well, the government's not going to give you damn Cheerios. Yeah. They're going to give you O's O's or whatever the hell they're called. O's of oats. <laughs> O's of oats. It was some bullshit like that. <laughs> I'm telling you, they didn't get very, uh, they didn't get very creative on their names. It's in the government assuming food. this whole time you feel this, the heavy eyes weighing on you, staring at you. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. And, and so I'm trying to make left from right of this situation. I'm doing this court thing, you know, this court ordered counseling. I'm trying to learn about myself I'm trying to learn about these people. We're on welfare. I go to, I go to school every day as a 10 year old. I smell like a wood fire. Cause we had a wood fire stove and my mom smoked. So I smell like smoke and wood fire. So getting girls was non-existent. Yeah. That just didn't happen. No one loves the smell of wood fire. They're like, Ooh, the musk of wood fire. It's lumberjack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're just not into that. A 10 year old girl. She's like, um, no, um, you know they want to smell lavender he and vanilla like cotton candy. He like <laughs> yeah, he's blonde and smells like cotton candy. I sort of want to be with him. <laughs> you know, they don't realize as Young a ten Timmy. year old, I'm mauling. You know, splitting wood. So my my parents, uh, you know, my mom doesn't freeze. My my brothers don't freeze, and I'm doing that at three in the morning, waking up and loading wood stoves when other kids are just dreaming about God knows what. And uh, and so quickly uh, we'll go back to the school thing. So going to school you know, they get you in these lines, you know, they herd you through like a bunch of cattle and you're on, you're on the free, the free lunch line. Yeah. And there's certain things like the kids that come with money, you know, they can get a cookie, they can do all this a la carte stuff. And, uh, but no, when you're in a free lunch line, you get to government pizza, which looks like cardboard with the lowest grade of mozzarella possible. Can't even look at the cookie. Tastes like it too. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, without a doubt. So you're doing all this stuff, and I'm and I'm starting to notice that I'm being treated different for something that should not be. Uh, I shouldn't Status. be treated. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like this classism that, and I'm starting to learn a little bit about classism at this time when I'm ten, yeah. and I talk to people that are 30s that don't know what classism is, and. You know, and I'm I'm seeing all this happen as I'm ten, and then I'm starting to get ostracized by the lunch lady when I'm finding it's becoming a point of embarrassment that she makes me sign my name next to the free lunch number. That's hardcore. Yeah, and and this lady knew who I was. I mean, shit. There's 30 kids in my class. Yeah. This lunch lady sits down. It's her job to know who people are. And midway through the year, I'm still signing my name next to this, and everybody's looking at me. I, I, I got so embarrassed, I, I would not even eat because it would be so embarrassing. Well, then that became a level of embarrassment. Oh, well, now what, Luke, you don't have food to eat? Yeah. No, I'm not hungry. Well, back then I was thin and people could see when somebody's hungry yeah. and I was clearly hungry. Yeah. And, but I just found ways to get, to get away from that saying, okay, I can take this free food and be made fun of even more than I'm already made fun of. I can get bullied more than I'm already bullied. 
or I can just sit over here, not take the free food, only be bullied by a select few, only be made fun of by a select few, and sit over here by myself, smelling like a wood stove, smelling like a pack of Marlboro Lights, and I can keep to myself and read my books. Starving. And starving, you know, and uh, eat my government cheese when I get home. And and that's that's what I opted to do. But in doing that, I realized at 10 that I will never let somebody control me. Yeah. And that's, I think, what it ties you all back into. I was as much as a product of that system in that environment. I was as much as a victim of circumstance as one could probably be. And at 10 years old, I, I had to decide do we have free will? And, and if the answer is no, I'm going to go to the sugar shack where we made maple syrup every, every spring and I'm going to kill myself. And if we do have free will, I'm not going to kill myself and I'm going to make sure none of these motherfuckers can ever control my life. Yeah. And that's, that's where I went. And, um, and so the, the next eight years, that I decided to be down on that road. I mean, obviously gone through anger issues, still poor. Um, you know, I had a lot of outlets. I, I was skateboarding really hardcore into martial arts. Uh, that, those were my outlets, extreme sports, martial arts. Uh, uh, I did a lot of great things with Taekwondo when I was into that um, skateboarding. I was semi-pro to, you know, that was the biggest level I got to uh, went out and did a lot of competitions over at Woodward and, uh, and so I got to that level, but it was to the point where even those accomplishments weren't good enough. And skateboarding was, it was a very expensive hobby. Yeah. Um, and so I had to find a way to get that hobby paid for. And I certainly couldn't do it with my mom. I mean, every year my dad would give us, you know, enough child support that we could effectively go to TJ Maxx and buy the cheapest things we could. We could all get two pairs of Levi's and that's what we had. And, uh, so we did that and, and, you know, my nicknames were all kinds of stuff through the Mansfield skateboarding scene, dirty Luke mainly. Cause we didn't have clothes. We didn't have stuff. And, uh, you know, trans world skateboarding later knew me as dirty Luke of Mansfield. So that was sort of cool <laughs> looking back. Uh, so my competition days, just before the days of internet, you know, they had to call people things like, ah, oh, here's dirty Luke for Mansfield, Ohio. And because whenever other people were just, you know, doing nothing, I was trying to push myself to that edge I was trying to do handrails. I was trying to do, you know, 10 step uh, sets and really push myself because I knew the, the ends would justify the means. This could be a way to get out of the shitty situation. Um, and, and, and the way I decided to pay for that, uh, I got a paper out and I had a guy, his name is Don. He's passed away now. So I don't mind saying his name, but, uh, he was the manager of my paper out. And, and it, it was really weird because when you have a paper out and you're 10 years old, um, you don't, you still don't know anything about economics or free market or, or people in general. Yeah. And, you know, and so I like, oh yeah, paper out, I can skateboard, I can exercise. Then I can go to karate class that night. Then I can, oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, so I'm jacked about this idea and I'm here and you can make like $40 a week. And as a 10-year-old, I'm like, yeah, I can work three weeks and get a new deck from California Cheapskates. This is badass. And uh, and it wasn't until I got that job for about a month that I realized, man, there is a dirty low side to this. There's a real dark side to being a 10-year-old paper delivery boy. And the dark side is collection. Yeah. Collection. Now, certain people were on credit. 
and certain people were on collection and we always really liked the, the credit people. And I never know what that meant. Always liked those people. You know, they're, Oh, hi, Mrs. Mrs. Jones. Hey, thank you for the Christmas tip. You know, those were the people that were awesome. The people that weren't were the people that you had to collect from. Now, this is when I realized that no 35 year old man that's paycheck to paycheck and wants to get his newspaper wants to pay a 10 year old when he doesn't think you can physically make him pay <laughs> for this newspaper. Yeah. Now, even though it's only a quarter or 50 cents, I think it got to on the Sunday times, even though it was that cheap, you realize that I have no physical way to make this guy pay me. Yeah. I can't fight him. Nope. I will be overran completely. I will be killed. How do I get this man to give me a goddamn quarter times two weeks of when I need to collect shin kick? Yeah. Well, I mean, trust me, I was exploring a lot of options and, and then I realized, you know, as my brain was developing, why am I thinking about this hardcore over a couple dollars? Yeah. This is insane. And I'm delivering to these people more and more people that realize Hey, instead of me putting my credit card on a credit file, I'm just going to go and cash collection. And when I need to repay for my paper, they're eventually going to want to hire me to, to they're going to want to call us up and say, Hey, Mrs. Jones, you haven't paid for your paper lately. Tell you what, if you come back and start paying again, we'll, we'll wash that old debt clean. And so they would, of course, two weeks later, they're not paying again, but that was how the paper decided we need to get our money. The difference is, all the money I was supposed to be making, I had my manager, Don, explain it to me that, see, son, in a condescending way, if you can imagine, see, there's creditors, then there's cash people. After the credit pays for the papers, you get the cash. I said, well, Don, there's no cash. I can't get these grown men to pay me. There's certain people that they, they're single moms, you know, and they, they can't afford it. And I, I'm not, I can't with a straight face, go to these people and say, Mrs. Jones, I, I really need to pay, get paid this $2 for the, this two weeks. She's like, I'm sorry, Luke. I just don't have the money. I can't look at them with a straight face and say, whatever's more important than this paper somehow is not more important than this paper. <laughs> yeah. Cause I need my goddamn money <laughs> yeah. or I'm not going to get paid. Yeah. And I need my money because I have aspirations, Mrs. Jones. And and so that's that's when it, it all came to me that every two weeks I had to pay Don the money, the man. I had to give the man the money, even when I didn't have the money. Oh, and, and finally one time it came to a head that I had $25 in collections. I was supposed to collect 75 I had, uh, you know, I had 25 And uh, I owed 40 And I was skateboarding down. I was going to karate class. And there was this, this place called Hearst Drug. And it was a drugstore. And the people had this box candy. And they had all this candy. And I saw them bringing in the new shipment of blow pops and these little flavored Tootsie Rolls. Yeah. And these Tootsie Rolls were one and two cents a piece. And the box came in like a box of a thousand. And I'm like, okay, I did the math real quick. I'm like, man, kids are always looking for candy at school. These rich a la carte kids. Man, they're always looking for the cookie. They're always looking for the blow pop. Huh. I'm a poor kid. How do I get rich kids money? And I go up to the clerk and I said, 
hey, excuse me, if I buy all those Tootsie Rolls, how much would, would it cost? Yeah. And I could do the math. A penny at you know, a thousand Tootsie Rolls, obviously. I could do that math. Shit, I was trying to prize the rent out of the local paper people. So I could do the math. <laughs> and, you know, the guy's like, oh, well, I mean, 10 bucks. Uh, it's, uh, I'll give you this box. I'm like, well, why would I ever want to buy the box? What's my incentive to buy the box? And I was like, you know, mister, what's your incentive to buy the box? Because why wouldn't you buy them as you need? Why would you buy the box if there's no incentive to buy more? Yeah. And he goes, tell you what, kid, you give me five bucks, I'll give you the box. <laughs> I had that $5 on that table so quick. You know what? And it was followed by the other 20 uh, that I was supposed to give to Don, the paper guy. Yeah. Because I said, fuck it. I'm done with it. He, he thinks I suck because I can't beg these poor moms to give me their money. I certainly can't fight these old men to give me their money. So fuck it. I'm the worst. So I either got to take this 25, go all in, and get, you know, all these Tootsie Rolls. Yeah. Or I can uh, I can just give them $25, still have nothing to my name, no Tootsie Rolls, no intrinsic property, and just be fucked. Yeah. So I said, you know what? I'm buying the Tootsie Rolls. Don can suck it. I'm buying the Tootsie Rolls. And if he wants to fight me, I'll fight him. Because at the time, I was a yellow belt. And you know what? <laughs> I could do two katas, and I could break a board with the grain face in the right way. So I was ready to rock. You know, and, and, and this is how I thought, this is how, yeah. you know, I, I thought 10 year olds all thought, but when at the end of the day, 10 year olds aren't thinking about this, they're thinking about what they're getting for Christmas and I'm fighting for my fucking life yeah. out on main street in Belleville, Ohio. Yeah. And, uh, so the clerk sells me these Tootsie Rolls and man, there are some good ones. Cause there's like the sour apple. So it wasn't just like the bullshit chocolate, weird chocolate flavor. You had a nice variety to go pedal. Oh, I had, I had a variety cause I knew variety. I knew there was a, a certain amount of kids and I knew there was a certain amount of kids that could afford us. Cause I knew the five other kids that were poor like me in the poor kids line. Those weren't going to be my customer. My customer were going to be the kids that always wanted the cookie the fruit cup and the government pizza wasn't good enough. I want the chocolate chip cookie. You know why? Because my parents are privileged. We can afford this shit. Because my dad's working. My mom's working. My dad's having an affair. They, God knows what they're doing. Whatever they were doing, they could afford the cookie. And you know what? I want to be the cookie. Yeah. And, and so I said, I got to be the cookie. So I took my $25, got all these Tootsie Rolls, and I go to school the next day smelling like cigarette smoke had my skateboard my dirty luke self you know and but i had a pocket full of tootsie rolls and when those kids got in line i said you know what i think i might have a reason to get in this government line again yeah but the reason isn't for my food the reason is so i can pay for my own food on behest of these people that have money and i'm going to go up to them and say hey i know you always like the cookie but have you had a sour apple tootsie roll like, what the hell is that? I'm like, well, for 20 for a dollar, you can find out. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, 20 for a buck? Are you serious? I can get 20 of something for a dollar? A dollar I didn't even own? My dad just gives me five a day. Shit, lunch cost $1.75. Give me 100 of them. Bam. I found a market. Yeah. So at 10 years old, I no longer had to get school government lunch. And... When I started making that money, I was making about five to twenty dollars a day now. That's a good deal. Real good deal. And I remember going to the lady, I got an in school suspension for this. 
But I remember going to the lunch lady, Mrs. Lance, and I told her, I said, I'm not signing your paper. I'm paying for this lunch and this cookie. You know yeah. why? Because I can. And she looked at me with the biggest grin on her face, and she said, I'm so proud of you. And she gave me a hug. And, and I didn't understand what was going on. So I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> why am I getting a hug from this lady? Yeah. But I was getting a hug from her, and I pushed her down. And she oh. fell, and I got sent to the office, and I got in school suspension. But looking back, I like to thank Mrs. Lance because when she was giving me a hug, she was giving me a hug because she saw me break through the system. Yeah. She said, wow, I don't know what's going on in this kid's life, his parents' life, some shit that she probably can't even understand. You know, I knew her son. She wasn't throwing her son through walls. But I quickly saw the admiration in her eyes. Looking back, I didn't see it then. I was just a spiteful 10-year-old. Hell off of me. You were just yeah. a spiteful 10-year-old. That was I was. That was abused by police. Yeah, well, well, yeah. I mean, that was a yellow belt karate, and I was ready to kick some ass. <laughs> Poor and and uh, so I pushed her down. And uh, But to this day, I think she's the turning point. Yeah. Because when she smiled and nodded in admiration, I thought she was making fun of me like everybody else is making fun. Yeah. But looking back, and I, I would always like to talk to her. I don't know if she's still on this earth or not. But to this day, I've always wanted to talk to her and say, when you did that, because I know she still remembers. Yeah. So when you did that, I would like to know, like, what was your intent? And I, and I want to believe her intent was you fucking made it. Yeah. You fucking made it. Yeah. You're no longer a victim of circumstance. You fucking made it. Yeah. You're paying for your own cookie. And that's what this life's about. Yeah. Life's not about, oh, the rich kid gets a cookie. I'm going to step on his cookie and spit on it. Fuck that kid. Yeah. No, life's not about that. <laughs> no, it's not. I think life is about saying, you know what? I like chocolate chip cookies and I want my own. Absolutely. And instead of stealing from somebody else or being pissed off and miserable and being mad because they have a fucking cookie, I'm going to find a way to get my own. Yeah. And uh, so from 10 years old, all the way to 18, you know, going through that whole court order counseling until I was an adult when they couldn't control me anymore. That was everything I was doing. It was how do I, how do I take this market that I'm coddling and make it, make it so I can do more. Yeah. And by the end of that, that my uh, 10 year old year, I don't even know what grade school I was in, but by the end of that school year, I was selling blow pops and I was getting those bitches for five cents, selling them for a quarter which was great. So now I didn't have to carry 25,000 goddamn Tootsie Rolls. Now I'm carrying a 10 pack of, of, you know, blow pops Yeah, and getting a lot more bang for my buck. Absolutely. And now what's great is people see that stick hanging out of all these kids' mouth instead of chewing a Tootsie Roll real quick. And so they want to know, well, well, where'd you get that stick? Where, where'd you get that blow pop? Yeah. Dude, Luke, the candy man over there. So you went from smelly Luke to Luke, the candy man. Yeah. Dirty Luke. Dirty yeah. Luke, dirty Luke. Yeah. yeah. Smelly for sure. <laughs> but that wasn't, that wasn't the adjective. Anybody wanted to coin that as a so you, uh, I mean, do you think, cause I think about this a lot. I think, I mean, that kind of proves it. I mean, cause I mean, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb talked, he, he pointed something out an anti-fragile that I'd never really heard of. And then I thought about my life and then like how I've reacted to certain situations. Sure. So there's post-traumatic stress syndrome which everyone talks about and coddles and there's post-traumatic growth syndrome, which a lot of people don't talk about. Like it's like the opposite effect. Like you either, you either raise up or you get pushed down. 
And so do you think like it, it kind of goes back, this guy Jay Dyer talks about this, that free will isn't something that's given to us. It's something that we have to earn. Right. Well, and, and I agree with that looking back because like I said, I, I was to the binary decision of I, I kill myself or do I, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. And, and this was honestly a thing that looking back, I, I, this wasn't an attention grab. No, there's no attention seeking in the middle of my woods in the sugar shack to where we make maple syrup one time a year. There's no attention there. It was knowing how much my mom loved my, my younger siblings, mm-hmm. me going from all these different variations of, of feeling like, okay, I'm just being thrown around literally and uh, mentally, yeah, you know, figuratively, if you will. And there's no attention seeking. It was, do I go out and grab this free will by the balls and make it mine? And maybe free will can hashtag me to one fucking day. <laughs> or do I just kill myself and just let my mom only, only take care of three kids instead of four. Yeah. And, and that was the thing. And I don't know if I didn't do it because, you know, and I had a 22, I stole my uh, ex stepdad's 22. Cause when he left, he left his little 22 pistol. And I don't know if I did it or didn't do it because I was scared or I don't know. So I don't want to act like I was this big, courageous 10 year old. And I just went out and grabbed it, you know, and just said, fuck you free will. I'm taking it. Yeah. But I know for some reason I didn't kill myself. Yeah. So I always like to think I was, I was a badass, you know, and I was like, fuck it. I got it now. I got you. I think right maybe you just I enjoyed you. living too much. Well, and there yeah. could have been in a freaky way because living was really bad for me then. Yeah. And so in a weird way, maybe like, in a maybe, you maybe, maybe you just knew that, uh, you, I think too, you knew that life didn't have to be the way that it was. Cause I think a part of you really wanted to buy those cookies and buy your own lunch. I did. And I, maybe it was just Re- being able to buy your own lunch was something that got you out of that. You don't, I mean, we don't know. I'm just speculating. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think there's a lot of truth to be said with that as well. I mean, that was definitely a proud moment, even though yeah. I got in school suspension. Cause beat up a lunch lady. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, it was it was pretty hardcore. They're like, "Oh, he kicked her," and I'm like, "I didn't kick her. I just pushed her down." So you're admitting to pushing her down, and that's when I quickly realized, don't tell anybody anything. Yeah, who's in charge? Because the more you tell them, the more shit that's you get just in. Bullshit. Yeah, they're like, the truth will set you free. Yeah, motherfucker. Unless you don't know the truth, because so, what's the matter? So you you were doing skateboarding. So after you were ten, you're skateboarding. You did competitions. Like, did you get money? Yeah. Was it like? Uh, a- it was sponsorships. Okay. So I had small level sponsorships. There used to be a uh, skateboard shop called uh, Sun Sports, I think in the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, in uh, like the French Quarter, there was something, there was something French. I don't remember what it's called. I know. But, it, yeah. It's off 71. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was really cool. So they had, they had uh, like many competitions there. And then the winner goes out to Woodward and PA and, uh, and you get to go out there and it was like, oh, hell yeah, this is, this is where the Bones crew is, man. And you get to see Tony Hawk, Mike McGill, and Ed Templeton and all these dudes that, you know, every day I would go into that Hearst Drug and read the new subscription of Thrasher and Transworld Skateboarding. And I'd, I'd look up these tricks, how to do them. And these guys were my idols. And, and I, and then finally, so if you're good enough to get through this one competition, they'll send you out there. And I'm like, oh fuck yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be good, and uh, and I won, and and so they sent me out, and they they said, okay, yeah, you got to go out, go compete, and I got my ass kicked. 
I did. <laughs> Those guys were really good. Yeah. And, and it's amazing that people don't understand the disadvantage you have when skateboard season in Northern Ohio is five months out of a year. When these guys are in long beach and Santa Cruz, they're skating 365 days a year, you know, 24 hours a day if they want. Yeah. And you don't realize the disadvantage until you get there. And I'm like, Oh, I'm going to bust this 360 kickflip down a set of six stairs. And I'm going to be badass because I can. And then you see this guy said, well, fuck you. So I'm going to do a 360 kickflip to a 50, 50 and pop off 180. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, <laughs> Oh shit. It's okay. totally different level. I'm, I'm owned, you yeah. know, and, and that's quickly where I was like, Oh, I got these sponsorships. I, I get, I'm doing the level. I was getting free skateboards. I was getting free shoes at that point. And, but I just realized, okay, uh, out of my league. Yeah. You know, there's a guy named Rob Deerdeck that was owning the street street stuff. And uh now we all know Rob Deerdeck from obviously Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he was out there. And uh, you know, and he was just a young kid like myself, a little older than me if I remember, but he was one of the guys, he was really good on street, badass on street. And I was always bad at vert, you know, I was always scared of vert. I'm like you want me to jump off this wall? Are you fucking kidding? <laughs> Not doing that ever, <laughs> you know, but for some reason, jumping down 10 stairs was different when your board <laughs> is doing a million twists under your feet. That was different somehow. And, uh, but Rob was one of those guys that I first saw and I thought, Holy fuck, I'm way outmatched. Yeah. But that guy's awesome. And he will always be awesome. And certainly as we all know, he's still pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. So when did you start your band? Like when did you start getting into music and playing music? Well, it was interesting because one of my outlets was, uh, was music. Um, you know, and my mom, like I said, she was raised Southern Baptist. She raised us Southern Baptist. And then that makes that weird hybrid of seven day Adventist, you know, for the brief time she was married to my, my now ex stepdad. Um, so we had, it was fun. We had Sabbath on Saturday and Sunday. So it's like, well, when the hell do we work around here? I got to deliver a paper on Sunday and I'm getting abused by this guy cause I'm doing it. And you know, so it was, it was really wild. Um, but that was when I, I really got into music cause I, I said, okay, the best way, the best way to fight this guy would not be fighting this guy. Yeah. It would just be going to my room, hibernate, you know, be in his eyes, this little as possible. Um, so I had the less like, you know, at least likely to be abused. And so I got into a bunch of music. Well, at the time, my mom would only let me listen to Christian music. So I was like into Michael W. Smith, DC Talk. Man, when DC Talk came out, I was like, oh, hell yeah. These these my boys. Michael Tate. Woo. You know, these are my boys. And the weird thing about it is, looking back, I think the the draw to the Christian community was that they were so accepting of this forgiveness of God gives us free will there's hope yeah. for the downtrodden. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I do feel like one of these downtrodden people, <laughs> you know? So maybe there's hope for me. So I'd be sitting there like memorizing and I'd like want to save up for a guitar. And, uh, and finally, after I realized my skateboard career is, is not, I mean, yeah, I was awesome. I was the big fish in a little pond in Mansfield, Ohio. I was dirty Luke, you know, that didn't mean anything. Cause I couldn't beat Rob out on, you know, he's doing shit. I've never seen, Yeah, you know, cause his family was rich enough to send him out to LA 
and uh, to skateboard full time. Wow. To skateboard in, inside all the time. Well, I didn't have that shit. Yeah. So he was getting good exponentially to my linear level of getting good. And it just was never going to catch up. So I, I wanted to find a new hobby. And I saw all these guys. And, you know, I had my outlet with my youth group. And I had all these guys, and we'd go to these concerts, these Christian concerts, and I'd see all these, you know, you really guys, cute girls. Did you guys girls. go to Ichthus? What they, was it? There was like the big Christian concert. Ichthus is like in Kentucky. No, no, never went down there. <laughs> no, we went. You know, we went to like the Akron Civic Center. Okay, got to see Newsboys and DC Talk. Yeah, you know, and I was probably twelve or thirteen at the time, and I saw all these pretty girls. You know, these blonde haired girls. They smelled like strawberries. <laughs> you know, they're living it up. And, you know, for a couple nights of my life, I was able to get a shower because we stayed at hotels with the youth group, get a shower. And, and I was able to put on this facade like, yo, I'm in a good situation. You know, check me out. I'm an athlete. You know, I have a six pack of abs. You know, I could do all these cool shit. I'm, I'm like a ninja. You know, at the time, I think I was like a purple belt in karate, you know, so I thought I was the shit. And, like uh, and, and, and I'm moving up and, and this is all a construct in my mind because it's, it's what I wanted to be that I saw everybody else being. Yeah. And I can only get this at these Christian concerts, but I saw the, the adoration of, of these girls looking at DC talk, you know, when Kevin came out on stage, he's dropping the bars, man. And I'm like, damn, he's dropping bars. And look at this girl. She's a dime. Just checking him out. Yeah. And, and this guy, you know, you think, oh, this guy's probably only 17 on stage. Looking back, he was like 30, you know, <laughs> dropping bars. Yeah. And, but that was the thing. And I said, I need to be able to play it. And there's one song, I think it was Jesus Freak when it came out. It was like the big rock album, you know, DC Talk, rock and roll, you know, and, uh, and with the rock and roll coming out, he came out with a guitar. You need me to pause it or anything? Could, yeah, could you yeah, pause yeah, it real yeah. quick? Yep. You were watching this guy on stage, and then uh, you're seeing all these girls get googly-eyed over him. Oh, for sure. So I think it was uh, was it Kevin. I, I forget the other guy's name. I, I forget all DC talk. I mean, there's three of them. <laughs> but the guy comes out with this guitar, this electric guitar, man, and he just powers through this impromptu solo. And, and I was like, you know what? That's awesome. Whatever that guy's doing, that's awesome. And uh, so I said, well, I'm going to keep on skateboarding. Maybe, you know, there's something there, but I'm going to start saving for a guitar. And that's that's where that became. So I think uh, it took a lot of blow pops. But, how old, uh, so how old were you when you purchased your first guitar? I think I was 13. Okay. Yeah, I was 13. So I got myself a, uh, I got myself a little Hondo electric guitar. And uh, it, I mean, I didn't even know how to tune a guitar. It was really weird. I was just like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna just make these notes and just turn these knobs. I'm gonna line them all up. You know, I'm gonna line these things up because that's obviously how it works and when it's not. <laughs> but you know, people don't realize now, like when you're thirteen years old, there's no Google. Yeah. You don't know. You can't like just get on YouTube. We didn't have and, like, apps to tune our shit. We had like yeah. those stupid uh there's like snarks little, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I mean that those were out there obviously, but I didn't know what those were. Yeah. I just thought, well, you get strings on this thing. You line up all these, these knobs up here at the top and you just play some music, man. <laughs> and, uh, so I remember getting into it and that was, that was one of the things that, uh, and it, it became a focal point when I went to go visit my dad every other week 
is because he was, you know, he was into classic rock. I mean, Deep Purple and Zeppelin and all that. And and I was like, yo, dad, check this out. And he's like, what's that? Holy shit. Richie Blackmore, you know, and he started thinking of all these classic gods. And he's like, are you going to learn how to play? I'm like, I don't know what to do. I can do this. And I was like, bong, 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 you know, <laughs> playing. I'm like, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I was trying to play like, you know, some DC talk stuff, but nothing sounded right. And he showed me how to tune it and he showed me how to play, you know, he's more of like a cowboy chord guy, you know, play smoke on the water. Like, you know, anybody can, and he'd show me stuff like that. And then I was like, Whoa, well that Christmas he got us a, uh, I think it was a Mel Bay, like how to play guitar intro to guitar. And that's when I learned the power chord. And then uh, I go back to the Christian bookstore, the bookery. And uh, I had some money and I'm like, oh, I'm going to get the new Christian CD. White cross, baby. You know, and and it was like, (laughs) it was like the equivalent of white snake to the Christians, you know, and I'm like, white cross. (laughs) Hell yeah. These guys are shredding. And uh, I got into that. Well, then I, it caught my eye. I see this this other band. I'm like, what 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 is this? And they're called MXPX. Yeah. And I'm like, who are these guys? And there's an album with this spiky haired, weird little thing on it with a skateboard. I'm like, well, I skateboard. Yeah. I'm gonna get this, and I get it, and it's punk rock. Yeah. But it's at the Christian bookstore, and so this whole construct of of what Christianity and Southern Baptist Christian music is about was defied by these three dudes out of Bremerton, Washington called MXPX. And I'll tell you what, man, I became the biggest fanboy for these guys. And I still, to this day, I was, I was jamming that, that first CD poking at you. I was jamming it last night in my car and it sounds terrible. So, <laughs> so Mike, if, if somehow this ever gets to you, awful it was <laughs> terrible and the funny thing is there's there's a bunch of really good songs on it but that you know the recording quality back then when you're in a uh, indie label it just it's all terrible but i discovered the power chord and i discovered the the palm mute and down down strokes and, and i discovered all this stuff and i discovered wow not only guitar doesn't have to just be this this thing where you just are technically proficient to do these sweet solos like DC talk and, and white cross, but you can get a lot of angst out yeah. by jumping up and down and just playing until your fingers bleed. It's crazy music. You know, you got this drummer for MXPX Yuri that's playing like 250 beats a minute, you know, double bass beats, you know, eighth notes on the snare and i'm like what the hell is this guy doing and i'm like why why is he doing this and but it just became a way of saying this is my new anti-drug yeah this is it and then you know it's cool because their songs were like you know minute 48 seconds yeah so like it it was a lot of uh get the get the message out on to the next one and so likewise they were releasing records every year you know, when it took all these other guys like Guns N' Roses, we're doing it one every five years. No, MXPX, six albums in five years. Well, they were getting and, that Christian money. Too. Oh, they were getting that Christian money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I just became huge fanboys. And so that was my first like secular, like they were Christian, but they played in secular clubs. And yeah. that was my first secular concert that I went and I was like, holy shit, this is raw energy. There's a mosh pit 
There's circle pits. There's these dudes dressed up with spikes just going berserk. And uh, so it, it was really enlightening. And that's when I said, man, I always want to be involved in music. And I want to be involved in punk rock. I want to be involved in these sweet guitar solos. And I want to merge them all. Yeah. And at the time, I found my martial arts was doing the same thing. I was, I was, you know, primarily it was a Taekwondo. And, and I realized that I was getting bullied. Like, yo, I'm not going to do outward spinning crescent kicks to get rid of these bullies. That's not practical. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't until I started studying some of the Kung Fu, the Aikido, um, the other stuff, you know, uh, the Kinpo and, and some of this other stuff that I realized, okay, there's more practical ways of self-defense than being able to do some sweet ass Van Damme aerials. <laughs> because I realized early on when I was practicing you're not going to hit somebody on those sweet ass aerials unless they're being paid money to walk into that aerial on TV. Absolutely. And, and so I, I quickly discovered who was full of shit and who wasn't. And uh, so it was weird, man. My musical tastes were merging. I was starting to develop my own like little commerce and I was starting to turn into a little person, Yeah, you know, who had deep seated issues, Yeah, you know, with the government and with the state but I found ways to get out in spite of, and I guess that's what ties us all the way back around to, you know, so to what really started it to get me going to what ended up being a poker player. That was a professional, a professional touring musician and all these things that were that when people say, Oh, you're a professional musician. Isn't that like really hard to do? Well, it's not near as hard as getting out of a cycle of abuse. Yeah. You know, and I, I conquered that. So, yeah, 5% of stardom or 1% of getting out of a cycle of abuse. Well, uh, 5% seems five times more likely to succeed. Yeah. You know, so, to so it's me, probably pretty hus- pretty easy for you to go to on Warp Tour, too, and hustle CDs if you raise yourself hustling candy to your school friends. It was very easy for me, almost yeah. too easy, almost to the point where. You know, it was strange. So we get through my adult life and uh, we we get a band going and, and you know, I'm in my real early 20s and, and we're making some names. You know, we're headlining the Newport Music Hall. We're headlining all these big venues and we're getting a name for ourselves. But as a business person, my main, my main point was business. My yeah. emphasis is business. Whereas before... You know, I started finding a way to monetize this. I always wanted it to be, man, this music is awesome. This fusion of White Cross and MXPX. (laughs) If I could ever be that, fuck yeah, I'm going to be the man. You know, I'm going to get these hot punk rock chicks. And I'm going to get the hot chicks that smell like strawberries. (laughs) Two chicks at the same time, if you will. (laughs) You know, so I was just in my own little crazy world. And uh, so I start this band and looking back... You know, everything I was trying to do, the music went on the back burner. You know, how how we were trying to, uh, you know, sort of nurture that that musicianship. Yeah. That sort of went on the back burner because I was like, guys, we just played this place. Got 200 people at $5 a head. If we could play the Newport, we can get 1,500 people at $10 a head. Woo! Yeah. You know, and we're thinking, so we're just seeing like, these, these, just these visions of grandeur and just like, what the hell? And, and we thought we could do all this stuff. And, uh, 
And so that was my point. My emphasis was how do we do that? How do we take things to, bigger to the next bigger, level, yeah. bigger and bigger? And it was really weird because Columbus at the time, it was, it was fighting to cultivate itself as a, we're indie. Yeah. You know, we're really indie, man. Uh, there's all these bands that are just indie bands that were just, oh, man, not a surf and all these guys that, oh, we're cool, man. We're, and looking back, it was all, it was the, it was the elementary hipsters. Yeah. That were doing all this shit, you know. What was the name of your band? Seventh Echo. Seventh Echo. Yeah. And uh, so we were doing all this stuff, and Columbus was always weird because it was too indie for us, but Cleveland was always too metal for us. Yeah. And but I said, okay, well, I'd rather, instead of deal with these indie assholes or these metal assholes, what do we deal with? I guess we'll find our own way. Yeah. And we started building that relationship and developing that. And next thing we know, as we're you know playing the Newport, putting a bunch of heads in there, we uh we get a call from a guy uh who's like yo man congrats you guys are doing the vans warp tour like what <laughs> the hell is that why wait why are we doing that yeah and i knew of vans from my skateboarding days i'm like is that a skateboarding tour and they're like no that vans is just the sponsor i'm like why would they sponsor a music tour only that the only punk rockers skateboard yeah i'm like oh shit we're not punk rock why how did you find out that we're doing this? Why are you congratulating me? Yeah. And like I said, keep in mind, this was Oh five. So internet was still not much of a thing. No. Yeah. I mean, we were still on like, you get the AOL discs in the mail in Oh five. I think, I think if you had money, you could afford to get it. You could afford to get a cable modem. And I was, I was in college. So we had a T one connection, which is like oh, 1.5. You were the guy 5. with the cookie. Yeah. Well, you no, know, in college. In college, you yeah. were that asshole. <laughs> yeah. You were the guy with the cookie. My porno, my porno game went to the next level. Went sure. from photos to being able to download videos. Yeah, and uh, it, and it got <laughs> it got really cool because uh, so I started going through and I had an AOL account and uh, and I said, man, how how do I know if we're on this tour? So I get on vanswarptour.com. And I look up the bands and I'm like, I don't see us anywhere. What, how do people know? And it's like more bands to be announced soon. Like maybe we're one of the bands, but I thought somebody already congratulated us. So I go through my spam folder. Didn't even know it existed. <laughs> and there's an email from a guy named Kevin Lyman. Yeah. And it's like, Hey, I hope this finds the right person. And, uh, and at the time I, it goes to the email address that, Early on, we'll backtrack a little bit. Early on, I realized that we were self-managed. We we're self-funded. We were doing it all on our own. We were crowdfunded before crowdfunding existed. Yeah. You know, we just had a small crowd that liked us. And, uh, and so I learned that booking agents don't like talking to people who aren't promoters, who aren't agents themselves. It was like this classism thing. Yeah. Oh, I'm not talking to a band. They're full of shit. Yeah. And I said, well, who cares? How do they know I'm in a band? So I developed an AOL email called EEA booking <laughs> Edwards entertainment <laughs> associates was the acronym. And I said, I am now going to be this dude named Ed banks and I'm going to book seventh echo and these other bands. I'm going to take on other pet projects and I'm going to book them locally and I'm going to keep them happy, wet their whistle. But my primary focus is going to be on my own band Yeah, as a pseudonym. Yeah. 
And, you know, I don't really look at it as malicious. I mean, I was no different than Dr. Seuss or Mark Twain, I don't think. Yeah. But it was just a, a way. That's I think, how you got to play the game. It, it is. You know, I think Mark Twain sold many more books than Samuel Clemens. Absolutely. Proven. And uh, same with Dr. Seuss. And I, I would I would implore anybody on this podcast who's listening to even tell me what Dr. Seuss's real name I is. I have no idea. Right. And there are some asshole looking right now at Google like, well, this guy's not going to best me. <laughs> you know, I thought Dr. Seuss was like Santa Claus. I, I thought he was Dr. Seuss. God damn it. You know, and you'll finally realize he was no more of a doctor than, than yeah. Bill Nye. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it was one of those things that, uh, that was the way it was getting done. And, and it was so much proof into pudding. Kevin Lyman wrote at banks and Hey, I'm interested. I hope this finds the right people. I'm interested in this band. You guys are doing good things. Uh, one of my talent scouts saw you at the Newport kicking ass. And I'm reading this email in awe, like just awestruck. Like, and, and at the time, Google wasn't even the search engine that you use. You use like Alta Vista or something. And so I'm like Alta Vista in this shit, <laughs> which obviously that doesn't have near the ring that Google does. Yeah. Which is probably why that went by the wayside. <laughs> or Yahoo. So yeah, Yahoo wasn't even a thing. I don't think much. I mean, it might, it was like getting its thing, yeah. but there's like a couple search engines. Dogpile. Lycos. Yeah. There are some things like that. And, and I'm looking up Kevin Lyman. I'm like, now is the, I know I'm full of shit. Yeah. I'm not Ed Banks. Is this guy really Kevin Lyman? You know, and uh, and I search him I'm like, oh shit, this guy is Kevin Lyman, and uh, and this is his email address. I found it, and uh, and still that's his email address to this day. I, I emailed him last year, and uh, and it was really cool. So I write him back. I'm like, hey, yeah, um, I actually forwarded this to the lead singer and the guitarist of the band because I didn't want to approach this guy like this is a real opportunity. I didn't want to fuck it up with some pseudonym. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I, and I was like, yeah, Hey man, uh, my manager sent me this and we're really excited, but just so you know, we're not punk rock. And he goes, dude, we're trying to be diverse. And I was like, Oh, fair enough. We'll be diverse. And, uh, but I know nothing about the warp tour and we're going to research it and we're going to be badass. We're going to make you proud, Mr. Lyman. And we can't <laughs> wait to see you at your main amphitheater at whatever is like June 27th, this kickoff of the warp tour. Yeah. We can't wait. We're making you proud. And he's like, okay. I'm like, okay. I just spill my guts to this guy like fanboy. And, and he <laughs> says, okay, okay, cool. So my, my guitarist and I, we got some scratch together and, uh, I said, hey, we need to do our homework. He goes, okay, yeah, that's fine. What do you want to do? Well, we got the Warp Tour, baby. And he goes, what the hell is that? I said, well, it's this tour. All I know is we're playing at Jermaine fucking Amphitheater. So we're going from the Newport in front of 1,500 people to now playing a venue in which we've seen the likes of Creed. Um, Ozfest was there Ozfest. You know, we saw Blink 182 headline yeah. there. Like, Dave Bush, Matthews did two, two days Matthews. in a row. Oh, it yeah. It was a special thing. Sold and out. And we saw all these people and we we're like, fuck yeah. Yeah. How are we doing that? And, and my band was so, we were jumping up and down, literally jumping up and down. And I said, we got to go to Walmart right now, 2 a.m. <laughs> right now, we're going to Walmart. We go to Walmart and we got the Warp Tour compilation DVDs. We said, we're watching these bitches until we know every note, every fucking person in the crew, every person, we will do this. And we did it. And I knew every person on the crew, uh, big Tom, little Tom, Kevin, all the guys, I knew them all. 
And uh, they didn't know me from Adam, but I knew them <laughs> because that was part of that was part of the the business. Yeah, you know? yeah. And instead of making sure we don't suck the day of, we're trying to make sure I can network with these bitches and we can get this done how I feel we needed to. Absolutely. And uh, so we and 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 watching this, we're overlooking the fact that all these bands are punk rock, <laughs> and we're not punk rock. Yeah, we're more Chevelle than. Blink 182. Yeah. We're more Creed than uh than the Ramones. Yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. So they announced finally the lineup. And now we see All American Rejects, they're on it. We see Fallout Boy, they're on it. And all these bands are just All American Rejects was on their uh, sophomore album. So they just went platinum with their their move along album. And All American Rejects are or uh platinum with their one the swing swing, the one that had swing swing. And they just released a brand new album called Move Along, and it's expected to go multi platinum. Uh, Fallout Boy, expect multi platinum artist by this time. Avenged Sevenfold was out there. All this diverse makeup of bands. My Chemical Romance got announced. Offspring got announced. Yeah. No Effects was announced. Uh, you know, all these bands, um, you know, like uh, uh, I can't even think of their uh, Mighty Mighty Boston's were there. All these bands were out there, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, how the hell do we all get on this stage? And that's that's when it all started putting together that I started realizing I went back to the DVDs and I realized like these are all at the same venue, but they're different stages. Yeah. Okay, I guess logistically that makes sense. So what stage do we get? How do they decide the stage? Yeah. I mean, we're the smallest band. That means we're gonna get the smallest stage. And so we all amped ourselves up. I tried writing Kevin eight more times in between there. Never wrote me back. <laughs> so, and we get this packet in the mail that's like, show up here. Here's your passes, yada, yada. And uh, so we show up and, uh, and we, we have a meeting at the Germain Amphitheater, like uh, the will call, like the management booth. And, you know, everybody's manager was there. So none of the bands were there. We were the only ones representing ourselves. And I'm there with all these dudes. I'm like, yo, yeah, who are you with? And we see their tour laminates and all this shit. And, uh, and we all draw a name and we draw a stage. Or we draw a time and a stage name. And I'm like, oh, this is a fucking righteous setup. So we could get the main stage that we've all seen. Or we could get some dumbass stage. But so could all American rejects. This is sort of cool. And uh, we go to pick our time. And all American rejects manager was right there next to us. And uh, we pick our time and it's noon. Bofunk stage. Don't know what the fuck that is. <laughs> <laughs> and all American rejects picks noon, 12 o'clock at the main stage left. I'm like, oh, wh- where are these stages? So they give us a, like a, the map. So they have all these stages that come in on truck and they lay them out and, uh, and you see all these stages and, and they, they map them out to every venue and they're setting them up in the parking lots. Well, it turns out the stage you want to be on a warp tour isn't inside the amphitheater at all. That's just a side stage divided into two. You want to be on these big ass semi rigs. <coughs> you want to be on these big semi rigs that, uh, you know, they put out and, you know, 10,000 people. So I'm like looking in the, uh, this big circle that makes up the the landmass of Germain Amphitheater of where all the stages are. And I'm circling all the way. I'm like, okay, there's Bofunk. 
and I'm circling with my finger, if you can imagine, on a map, like a, a globe. And I'm like looking, where's main stage left? Because <laughs> All American Rejects are the biggest band right now in the world. And fuck if we have to go on the same time as they do. But I'll even more goddamned if my finger didn't land right <laughs> next to the Bofunk stage, which is main stage left. And then I realized, well, shit, this can't be good for business. Yeah. Our first biggest show ever happens to take place 100 yards from the biggest band ever at the exact same time. This sort of sucks. <laughs> so all this, all this like crazy hysterical, like, you know, intense anxiety ridden couple months leading up to this has all crashed and burned more than it would. If you ate, you know, drank eight Red Bulls before you would go on stage and then yeah. like, oh, and just crash. It all comes crashing down to this. And I get to the band together. I go meet those guys at the, the, our little van and trailer. I said, well, guys, good news and bad news. The good news is we're going to have all day to watch cool bands. <laughs> the bad news is we have to load in right now. We have to set up right now because we are the opening band on Bofunk stage. And they're like, well, what the fuck is that? I said, well, if from according to the key, it said things aren't to scale, but I'm pretty sure a little dot with a Sharpie was pretty close to scale after we got to the stage. <laughs> Cause I'm like, they at least don't, they, they denoted main stage left as a rectangle at least, but we were literally a little circle with a Sharpie. Yeah. So I said, it did say not to scale, but let's go see what it's all about. And, uh, and we go see, and the stage was probably maybe like a 15 by 15 plot, not big at all. And we had a big back line. We had a professional back line, full guitar rigs, you know, full drums, everything. And we're setting up on a stage and the, the stage, every stage has their own stage manager and the stage manager comes out and we're already like pissed off, you know? So we're about as angsty as a lot of these fucking punk rock bands, Yeah, you know, but now we just look like the privileged angsty, you know, not ever being downtrodden, Yeah, you know? So now we go out there and, uh, and my band is there. We're all like just pissed. And I'm like, guys, we got, listen, let's make the best of it. I said, we're going to get a little bit of carryover from the warped from, from, we're going to get carryover from my, you know, these guys, the all American rejects. We'll get carryover from that. I said, let's just do the best we can. Uh, they only guaranteed us, you know, this date. I said, let's, let's be as badass as we can in spite of it. And maybe somebody will appreciate it. So it was like five minutes to showtime. And we, we hear the uh, texts through our monitors. We hear all American rejects texts through our monitors, tech and their guitars. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be terrible because this isn't even through the main PA and we can hear their shit in our monitors. And, and there's about 10 people in front of us, our, our fans that bought tickets to see us. And, uh, <laughs> And you know that was cool because the yeah. tickets were thirty bucks and, and they supported you. Yeah, they came out just to see us, and yeah. they're like, "Fuck the All American Rejects," you know. Yeah, we're here for these guys. Yeah, and uh, and you know, so we we're trying to set up, and I said, "We got to give these guys a good show." And five minutes before we go on stage, I'm loosening up. I'm I'm you know getting my vocals ready, I'm getting everything ready, and you know I don't know if anybody's out there in the land of the podcast that that has ever used their vocals professionally. But you got to warm up and there's things you do and there's things you don't do to make a good environment for singing. 
one of the things you don't do is stay up all night long (laughs) (laughs) ridden with anxiety about how this show is going to go. Well, wouldn't you know, that's what I did. Nice. And that's what my band did. So my vocal warmups aren't going good. So I'm getting nervous about that. And that's bringing on its own form of anxiety. I'm not hitting the notes. I'm supposed to be my lip trills aren't moving. I don't have moisture. I have no water in my system and I'm doing all this stuff. And then the manager, Bo Funk himself, comes up and goes, okay, guys, cool. I'm Bo Funk. Just letting you know, here's how it's going to go down today, boys. I said, okay, how's it going to go down? He goes, okay, drummer, where you at? Okay, you look like the drummer. He's like, hell yeah, I'm the drummer. And he's twirling his sticks. He's like, yeah, I'm the fucking drummer. Why do you need yeah. me? He goes, okay, I want you to come in. A real sweet thing, man. We're opening up Warp Tour. We're going to take the stage right before All American Rejects, right over there. I want you to come in with a boom. Boom, ba boom, boom. And I want you to do this. Then I want you to come down and do this tom fill. And then snare. And I really go into it. And then I want you to hit this double bass. Really bring us up. And really get into it. And I and I'm thinking this is some kind of fucking joke. Because I'm like, dude, we've rehearsed for years for this opportunity. We've never done that. Yeah. And I'm like, we've rehearsed this for years. And you got to imagine a band like us who is always waiting for our big break to be ready for it. You know, we were always waiting to say, hey, if the Creed tour bus ever passes us, say, hey guys, we need an opening band. Come with us. We'd be like, fuck yeah. Yeah. We're ready. Yeah. So we have this rehearsed spot that's so fucking tight. And I'm like, okay, there's no way my drummer Adam is like entertaining this idea. I glance over my shoulder and I wouldn't be goddamned if he is like shaking his head like a fucking 10 year old golden retriever that you're about to give his food and water to. Just like, just lapping it up, yeah. tongue sticking out. Like, okay, okay. Oh, yeah. Lars, you want some Lars Ulrich? Oh, I can do some one. Oh, fuck yeah. I can do that. I got that. That's in my repertoire. I'm like, dude, are you, what? We're not doing that shit and then he's like now now base where are you at and jared looks at him he's like fuck yeah what do you need from me <laughs> and i'm like guys we are not doing this we cannot do this and he goes what do you want from me and i'm like jared come on and he goes now seriously we're fucking we're doing it this guy knows we've never done this this guy has done this and i'm like okay they're true fair enough yeah. fair enough but why the fuck is he telling us yeah. t minus three minutes now yeah why is he telling us now? To come out like fucking yeah. yeah, to come out like fucking fever dog of you know whatever, and uh, and and it just got so funny. He's like, when he goes into the double bass, I want you to break it down, and I'm like, you can you do that? He goes, fuck yeah, I could chug. I'm like, <laughs> okay, what about our first fucking song? Yeah, and at this point, I'm not a hysterical person. But I'm nearly there. <laughs> I see 10 people in front of us. I see 10,000 people in front of stage left, main stage left. I'm hearing All American Rejects, you know, vocal mic one, vocal mic two, check, check, sibilance, sibilance. And I'm hearing that in my monitor bay. And I'm like, God, oh, this is going to be fucking awful. So I'm like really starting to get nervous. Like for the first time in my life, I'm thinking about finding cigarettes. I'm yeah. finding, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to take up a new fucking thing. And I'm looking around and it's getting intense. And then he looks over at my guitar. So I'm like, you know what? My guitarist, if there's anyone that will say no to this, <laughs> it's, him. it's him. He's my road dog, James. 
my road dog. You will not do this shit. You will not drink the fucking Kool-Aid that Bo Funk is serving up. And I won't be goddamned if I turn around. There he is, golden retriever number fucking three. Like, you know, and he's like, so what do you want me to do? He goes, can you just come out with this finger tapping solo? Like, you know, like, that's not us. He's like, I can do it, man. And it'll sound awesome. And I'm like, all right, cool. What do you want me to do? He goes, you're the front man. And I'm like, well, I have a guitar. So, yes, I am a front man, but I'm not. I'm not like Scott Stapp or like any of these guys, you know, Lane Stanley. I'm not any of these guys. Chris Cornell. I'm a guitarist that sings. Yeah. He goes, no, I want you to come out from the backstage, the back line. I want you to jump like a fucking monkey. Come to this thing. Hit that first opening chord. Grab that mic like it's your bitch. And I want you to own the world, man. And I'm like, dude, how much, li- how many lines, <laughs> how many lines of coke did you do ten minutes ago? And and the guys are looking at me. They're like, Luke, you're a fearless leader. If you can't do this, we're not doing it. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck you guys. We're doing this. Yeah. So now I'm buying in. I'm drinking the Kool Aid. I'm yeah, like, you yeah. got grape. I like grape. <laughs> Give me the grape. And uh, and if you can only imagine, if anybody has ever done anything rehearsed in their life. When you change something up from your rehearsal, you quickly realize why rehearsal is so important. Absolutely. So now by this time, there's probably the 10 people has amassed into about 40 people. And and we're doing this stuff. And we, we only have a half an hour. And this intro that my drummer is doing seemingly is taking up. 90% of this half an hour. <laughs> now I know it's not, but to us, it was taken up. I was like, and I'm waiting behind stage with my guitar and it's taking so long. Like I feel like my guitar is going out of tune naturally from like the gravity of the earth. It's taking so long and he's doing this stuff. Well, finally he comes into his thing and my bass player, he starts chugging. I'm like, okay, my guitarist comes out, you know, doing his shit and he's doing some cool thing. And I'm like, okay, I think this is me. And I come running out and I almost trip over one of the, the, they have gaffers tape everywhere, holding down XLR cables and, and all these mic cables and, and all the, all these guitar cables. And I about trip. I come out stumbling halfway. I hit my guitar on the mic stand and wouldn't you know, it does go out of tune. <laughs> hit my first chord and it sounds like the brown sound. So now I got the bass. I got my guitar shredding. And I got my drummer doing Lars Ulrich to his best ability. And I hit. And I go, God. And now all of this shit that I've had nightmares about is coming to fruition. And quickly, all of the DVD compilations of the Warp Tour is turning into Spinal Tap. Yeah. This is Spinal Tap. (laughs) So I grab the mic and in my coolest voice, I've never done it before because it's so goddamn cliche, but I feel like Bo Funk has now turned us into this, this cliche. So I said, you know what? Fuck it. Let's go with it. Hello, Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm doing this thing and I'm just grinding this chord. And you know, the 40 people, 10 of which are our loyal fans are like, this isn't these guys. Yeah. I bought a ticket to see these guys. What the fuck are they doing? They sold out. 
Yeah. And here's one thing you don't want to do at Warp Tour. Sell out. Is sell out. Yeah. And I realized we sold out. And we're not doing it good. <laughs> we're not selling out like Metallica Black Album yeah. or Reload and Load. We're not selling millions of albums selling out. Yeah. We are selling out to our 10 diehard fans that ponied up 30 of their hard-earned fucking pizza delivery dollars to come see their favorite local band sell out. Yeah. Only to finally get it all together 15 minutes into it. And before long, we finally pull it all together. And then we, by the end of it, we had a couple hundred people. It's and, pretty good. Uh, yeah, it was good. And then our last song, which we were going to really go out with a bang. We heard the opening riff in my monitor bank from move along all American rejects. The opening didn't, 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 didn't. And then I hear the drum to do, to do, to do, to do. And I'm like, Wow, this sort of sucks. Yeah. They're going out on their finale. Yeah. And our finale just got shit on yeah. by their finale. Man, this sucks. Is it like what Rob Diedrich all over again? It was. It was. I could see him doing that 360 flip <laughs> yeah. to the 50 50, doing a 180 off. Yeah. Yeah. And I just know right there my life got owned. And uh, so we get off stage. And Bo Funk is like so fucking happy, and and he's probably not even happy. He's just fucking high Entertain, as a kite and entertained, probably. Maybe not even that. I think the coke <laughs> still is not wore off. I mean, this guy was excitable to say the least. I mean, imagine a Jack Russell Terrier yeah. and a Bassett. You know, uh, the Bassett Hound just wakes up, and the Jack Russell is acting like it never wants to go to sleep. And now it's like this Bo Funk character, and uh, we get off stage, and I'm like, dude. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. It, it was rough. He goes, no, you guys were fucking awesome. <laughs> and I don't give a shit what anybody says. You were fucking awesome. You brought it. That's what counts. What are you doing tomorrow? I'm like, uh, well, I'd like to sleep at some point. He goes, fuck, no, you're not. I'm like, what? He goes, you guys are joining the Warp Tour. Nice. Like, oh, well, we didn't really get invited. Like, Kevin gave us this one show. He's like, bitch, this is my stage. Kevin answers to me. And I'm like, Okay, I guess you know. So <laughs> at that point, I was like, okay. So we get all of our stuff unloaded, and I go to uh, I go to my girlfriend at the time, and I'm like, so how many CDs did we sell? She's like five. I'm like, oh, that was really underestimated. You you were doing the Warp Tour for free, correct? Yeah, everybody does it for free, and that they're, like they're, South by Southwest. It's exactly like that. So you're doing it. At, it's a it's a conduit to market yourself. You market yeah. your band, and. uh and so you all do it for free. And so selling CDs and merch is how you do it. And, uh, and it's, it's Oh five. So we, we see five CDs sold. I'm like, well, and by this time, Napster is already a thing. People are on LimeWire, the fucking AIDS of the computer era. Yeah. Um, everybody was on that. And, and so people weren't buying CDs really. So I was like, ah, oh, maybe kids just aren't buying CDs. Maybe they're already, maybe the satellite radio thing I'm hearing about, maybe that's what this is. You know, these kids are in the know. And uh, and so then I was like looking around and I see other people holding CDs. And I'm like, actually, they aren't in the know. These kids are just as stupid as all the other kids and as stupid as we are. But now these kids have the cookie. Yeah. And I know, and I know how to get to the cookie. <laughs> yeah, the cookie. yeah. You know, so it quickly became a thing. And I told, I looked at the band and I said, guys. They said, what? I said, get this shit loaded up. Trust me. They said, okay. I said, so we had like a 10-minute turnover of stage time. You got to get your shit off. 
And so I said, get that. I got a, uh, I had a little Jansport backpack and I had the iPod, like, like the, the first I, one, the first iPod. It might have been a Gen 2 at that time, yeah. like an inch thick. Oh, dude, it was, it was like huge. A, it uh, was like uh, the first one terabyte external hard drive. <laughs> like it was that big, and uh, so I had this thing, and I had our music loaded up onto it. And I said, "Man, I don't know if kids are ever going to go to this, but I bet you, I can approach anybody, and I can sell anything. Yeah, I need to sell records. Yeah, because that's what we're out here for." And I said, "Okay, well, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go walk around and find the this, these kids. It's Turkey Leg Line." At whatever these lines are, I'm going to find these kids and I'm going to walk up with my headphones and I'm going to say, Hey man, you want to check out my band? We played at 12. Uh, unfortunately, at the same time, all American rejects did, but we'd like you to check us out. And the first person was like, yeah, okay, cool. And we never really dressed the part. I don't have tattoos. I had my ears pierced. I had long hair, you know, but we didn't really dress the part. We, we were always like, you know, we just, I, that was nothing that we were interested in. And so, I don't know if the guy thought I was full of shit or not, but the guy was like, yeah, man, this is a really cool song. Like, how'd I miss you guys? I'm like, well, we played the same time all American rejects. And he goes, oh, well, I, well, I'm not into those guys anyway. I, I was watching, you know, this other band on this other stage. I'm like, oh, and then I quickly learned like, you know, this isn't the world coming up against us. There's other bands also playing at the same time all American rejects did. Yeah. So my perspective at the time was, God and everybody that I've always thought about just took a big dump on us. That's not it. And then I quickly thought back to when I was 10 and thought, man, this is just one more bump. Yeah. And we got to find a way to get over it. Yeah. And before I even put those thoughts together and, you know, as slow as I can say, it probably happened at a hundred times that quicker than that in my head, the kid was saying, where do I get this CD? And I was like, it's in my backpack. 10 bucks. He goes, Oh man, I only have five, five bucks. It is. And I gave him the CD and, uh, and you know, cause at the end of the day, it cost us a dollar to press those CDs. Absolutely. And I'm not about to not make $4 cause that would go against everything I ever <laughs> yeah. developed in my cookie economic days. Yeah. You know? Cookie so economics. I said, yeah, I mean, cookie economics suggests <laughs> if you can get four or no money, you get four all the time. Absolutely. And uh, so I brought four to the bottom line and I went back to the guys. I said, are we're all loaded up. Here's what we're doing. Everybody grab your headphones. They're like, dude, you're the only one that listens to headphones. I'm like, okay, James road dog. I need you to go to Walmart right now. Get some headphones, get headphones. So we went and got Sony headphones, almost like the ones you're wearing. Yeah. You know, like $40 headphones. Uh, we go to Walmart, get them. And uh, came back and we got a headphone splitter and we split the headphones and we all walked around as a group, sat on a picnic table with all of our CDs as, as mobile merchandise booths, set them up and uh, called over people. And I noticed that my sales were outpacing theirs three to one. So the sum of their total, I was outpacing that three to one. That's awesome. And what I realized was it's not that I'm a better salesman. When, I, when, I, when I'm calling somebody up to come talk to me, I'm, I'm making a judgment, a snap judgment on this person. Yeah. And I'm saying, okay, this girl smells like strawberries. She wants to listen to DC talk. This girl looks like she's a punk rock chick. She wants to listen to MXPX. So in my mind, I'm quantifying that value yeah. as a way to sell these people. What song do we have? That's like DC talk. 
I'm I'm developing that rapport immediately before they even come up and say one word to me. This girl's a strawberry girl. What's DC talk? Because I know strawberry girl like DC talk. Okay, this girl's punk rock chick. What song's punk rock? And the reason I was making the sales was because I was so good at, at guessing what these girls are into based on how observant I was in my past when I was getting bullied and beat up that I was able to say, okay, this girl looks like she's into ballads. Wouldn't you know we have this song? Boom. Yes, you knew a song to play for. Yeah, so by the second chorus, they're like, how much? I'm like, 10 bucks. They're like, I have eight. Like, we'll tell you what, if you can find two more dollars, I can let you give one to your girlfriend. She's like, coincidentally, I found 10. (laughs) You know, because now it was to the point, well, I already know I was willing to sell one for five, but what's better than selling one for eight? Yeah. Two for 10. Yeah. And that's when I was like, now it gets to two more people. So I think we sold a thousand CDs that day. And that was in, that was in Columbus, Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. And then you went on tour and you guys just kept doing that. Yeah. So it it was pretty wild. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stories. I mean, I, I don't know how long you have for podcasting. Well, we got some time. I wanted you to get into poker. Okay. Yeah. We'll get get into a little, I don't know how much time you got. Oh yeah. You're busier than me. Blowing me up on everything. But you can can always come back again. And yeah. Well, you want to talk about, I have to bring you to my studio next. That's right. That's right. I'll come to your spot. And, my mobile uh, podcasting setup. So it was really cool. So we sold a lot of records, had a lot of money banked from that, and we're like, "Hey, this is going to pay for the, you know, the truck and everything to get down to that thing." Because in all of this, I forgot to bring this up, uh, which is wild. Thinking back of how much money we had to spend to get there when it was only an hour away. We only lived up in like Butler and Belleville, yeah, and about an hour away. But the day before Warp Tour, uh, our van engine blew up. So we had to rent a U-Haul the morning of wow, and get all that stuff. So that was wild. But and so with all this money we earned, we, uh, we, we put a nice little chunk in the bank and this guy invited us out on the warp tour. Yeah. Well, we already had engagements. And so at this time he wanted us to go the very next day. And at this time we already had, we were headlining the Newport um, July. It was, so that was like July or June 27th or so. And we had like a week out. We were headlining the Newport and July 3rd, we were headlining red, white and boom in the arena district on this nice. big badass stage. And it was right when the arena district first started building up it popping off. Yeah. Man. So, I mean, nationwide arena was there. I mean, that was a thing. And, but it was when it was, I mean, uh, Huntington park wasn't even built yet. No. Yeah. So, I mean, all this stuff is brand new. And uh, so I told Bofunk, I said, Hey, respectfully, we can't join this tour until, um, probably two weeks out. And he goes, well, uh, okay. Okay. Two weeks out. Okay. That's fine. And, uh, I said, where are you guys going to be in two weeks? He goes, it looks like Denver mile high. I'm like, God, one from Columbus to Denver. Shit. A thousand miles. Okay, cool. We'll see you there. And he goes, okay, cool. So we sort of left it like that. We had some money in the bank and, uh, from all the CDs we sold and, uh, we do the headlining gig at the, the Newport. That was awesome. Uh, first time we ever had women show us their boobs on stage. Uh, <laughs> for any budding musician out there, there is something that there is some kind of value placed on that that is is not tangible <laughs> by money or gold. There's no intrinsic value of. There's no way to quantify the value of that. But I'm telling you, it is the most cool thing in the world. Not because her boobs are good. 
Um, status level. <laughs> it, it was. It was a status level. Yeah, yeah. It was exactly that. It was like, well, Fred Durst is getting boobs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're getting boobs. Fred Durst. Ergo, we're Fred Durst. That's right. You know, so <laughs> it, it was It was one of those cool things. But, yeah, the shows were awesome. Um, we, we played in front of a bunch of people at the Red, White, and Boom on a really cool stage. So we get this money. We're getting it together, and we start traveling out west. Now, as I told you, I, the, the van engine blew up. Yeah. So with that money, I found a junkyard engine. And I'm like, oh, we can get this this V8 Triton, you know, this 5.7 liter whatever engine, and we can put it in our van. And uh, I didn't know a lot about junkyard engines. I, I knew, you know, <laughs> if you found an engine with good miles, whatever, it could be good. Well, uh, we're going to bypass a lot of – I'm going to spare you guys the details on a lot of the stuff. But it was to the point on our, our trek to the Mile High City – I don't think people realize where Ohio is generally at sea level or a couple hundred feet. Mile high city is mile high for a reason. It's 5280. Did you get altitude sickness? No, no, but my van did. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And, and the other thing is when you're going from sea level to a mile high, you're, you're passing these spots that are known as flat plains, Mm. the great plains, and everybody's like, oh, Kansas is flat. Yeah. Well, you don't realize you're actually on an incline toward one mile. Wow. And so we have this junkyard engine pulling a six by 12 trailer with 5,000 CDs that we put up the money to press ourselves. We had our guitar rigs in there. We're, we get to Columbus from Butler and our van's overheating. So we officially made it one hour and do a 20 hour trek and our van's overheating. And so we stop at one of the, the places that you stop at and they're like, Oh, you guys need a radiator flush. I'm like, whatever. Okay. Flush it. hundred dollars gone. We get down the road van overheats again. So we get just outside of plain city exit on 70 heading West. And, uh, we go to another place. Hey, you guys need, a new, uh, you guys need a new thermostat. So, okay. Well, we have the Haynes manual because I always had a Haynes manual to know how to diagnose cars and put stuff together. So my guitarist and I, my road dog, we get in there and we said, well, we're going to put this thermostat on, yeah. put the thermostat on. We get another two hours down the road in Indiana at this time on the other side of, uh, of Richmond, Indiana. Uh, and we break down again. So now it's nighttime. We left in the morning. It is now night. Ooh. So we're in a 20-hour trek, and we're about you know, 200 miles away from where we need to be, 800 miles away from our destination, and it's taken us almost a full day. And now you can only imagine how over it we're all becoming. And not only not to mention that, but all that money we made after pressing all the CDs out of Dollar Pop, after getting everything together with the van, we're doing this on a shoestring budget, yeah. but we have the idea that we can sell a thousand CDs. If we make it to the mile high city, we can sell a thousand cookies to the rich kids. So it doesn't matter what we spend now. We'll make it back. We'll make it back. And boy, let me tell you, wasn't that a lesson and poor fiscal responsibility? Yeah. Spending money before you have it. Yeah. Terrible lesson to learn on the fly. Absolutely. It's best to learn that lesson when you can't pay for your porn subscription downstairs <laughs> in your mom's basement. That when you're but, eight miles away from home. When you're when you're eight hundred to a thousand miles away from home, bad time to learn these lessons. 
And, uh, and so we get further down. We finally get to Alma, Kansas in the middle of nowhere on the other side of, uh, Topeka and Lawrence and a little town called Alma, Kansas. We break through at this time. We have now replaced all of our radiator hoses. We've replaced our thermostat. We've replaced our water pump and Indianapolis, the water pump we've replaced. We've done coolant flushes. We've done all of this thing. We get it into this little town called Alma, Kansas. And, and we're literally going 50 miles, letting it overheat, letting it cool down, going 50 miles, letting it overheat, doing all that. We get to Alma, Kansas. It's a little town, real small. It's on a Friday night and there's nothing to do in those towns. So everybody just congregates to the parking lots and they just have like a, like a get together in a parking lot. It's really weird, but they do it. And they saw a bunch of dudes like us that they knew was not from Alma, Kansas. And we were, we parked at this uh, little car wash and James and I, we got our little toolkit out. We took the entire coolant system off of our van in this car wash. And we said, we will get to the bottom of, because we, we could do, we could break it down. We said, okay, if it's overheating, it's for a reason. It's the, the core is cracked, something it's overheating, but there wasn't any coolant in our oil. So we knew the, the block wasn't cracked. And uh, so we knew it's a coolant system problem and we didn't know why. And we knew we had a brand new radiator on this thing. So the only thing we did not replace on our coolant system was the radiator. We replaced the water pump, the thermostat, all the, the hoses and, and it still did nothing. So we had all of these parts set aside. Uh, we had the entire engine block. We had it so taken apart that we could spray a hose, the pressure washer hose through our engine block and circulate all the way back around to make sure there's no hang up in that compartment. So we're like, okay, we, so we put that stuff back together. That's not it. And I popped the cap off the radiator cap. I said, you know, it's weird in all this time, our radiator cap never blew off. So I popped a radiator cap off and looked down and there's still coolant that's visible in the top of the radiator. Yeah. All the hoses are laying on the ground. So I quickly realized our radiators clogged our brand new radiator. And I would have never thought about it because it was brand new. Yeah. But it was brand new the week before warp tour, which was the week after we put a brand new, well, the junkyard engine in it. Yeah. All the gunk from the engine sitting standby, like the nest, the rat nest, all the shit that gets in it got into our new radiator. And uh, so I said, well, we got this at, at advanced auto parts. So I hear we can just take these back if whatever. So we call advanced. And, uh, and by this time we had a whole town of people trying to help us because they thought we were celebrities. They're like, holy shit, you guys are on warp tour. Oh my God. All American rejects. Like, oh, don't say all American rejects. And so by this time, our account is next to nothing. And all these kids are looking at us like we're rock stars. Now all their parents are coming in to help. They're coming to meet us. We're signing autographs. You know, my bass guitarist was playing acoustic and my drummer is busting out the bongos playing for these kids. And we were just like the bee's knees out there, man. We're kicking ass. And, uh, and so their mom was like, Hey, listen, we'll give you a ride to the little apple. What the fuck's the little apple? They said, well, the only nearest auto parts store is the little apple. It's an hour away. Wow. Like the nearest place is an hour away. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Are you out of your mind? 
where are we? You know? And they're like, well, the little apple. I'm like, why do you call it that? They're like, well, it's Manhattan, Kansas. We call it the little apple. Cause that's where K state is. Wow. Manhattan. I'm like, okay, whatever. So these parents, these perfect strangers take us. We go all the way over there and we're like, okay, cool. Uh, we get there, we get this brand new radiator. We go to advance. They're like, no, these store to store. We can't refund that. Like, okay. So we just go to AutoZone. We're like, Hey, if we have a problem with this, can we take it to any AutoZone? They're like, yes. So quickly I learned from that time and I still, I still maintain it to this day. If you ever have auto issues, always get it AutoZone because if you ever have to take it back nationwide, they will honor the warranty. Absolutely. And that's huge. So whoever's out there listening, um, AutoZone. Um, so we get, we get the radiator back. We put it all together. Well, by this time it's pitch black. And there's just not, our flashlights are dead. It's pitch black. Can't see a thing. Well, we missed a radiator hose. My bass player got in, didn't put the radiator hose on the bottom and it didn't put the, uh, the, the O ring on it to seal it or the, whatever, the clamp. Yeah. He didn't put the clamp on. So we get to a town called Colby, Kansas. And, uh, well, actually before that, Hayes. And break down again, and it's overheating. And I'm like, oh, motherfucker, I just want to drive into a cornfield and I just die. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> now, by this time, it is now, we had a two-week thing to get us out to Denver after our last show. So they gave us a week to get there after our very last show to get to Denver. And we, we're we one day out now. So it's taken us four days to get to this point. Four days to go 600 miles. Let's stay together. Yeah, so we're all like over it. Our bank account's drained, and uh, we get to a town called Hayes. And James and I, we go out in the the, the middle of the sun, and we we got to walk to the nearest gas station with buckets of uh, so we can fill it up with water. And you know, so we get there, we get back, we walked about five miles both ways. Hotter, we're burnt to death now. And we get back, we have the water, we pour it in, we get under the van, we realize that the thing blew off. That's why we have no more fluid. And well, we can't find the clamp because, well, I guess Jared never put it on. <laughs> so I said, well, I guess we have no choice but duck it and fuck it. So we found the duct tape, which was shitty duct tape. Because all it was was to hang shirts on walls, man. Like, <laughs> we're not sealing ducts with this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, so uh, we get the duct tape and we duct tape the radiator hose. And we're like, oh, this is this is obviously this makes sense. MacGyver, I mean, he wouldn't steer you wrong. So we get to a little town called Colby, break down again. And uh, at this time, like every the van's just not acting right at all. And uh, more community comes out, helps us. Big outpour of community. They all think we're rock stars, you know. And so they're helping us. Well, we have it looked at by this 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 tech that's like, yeah, your torque converter is uh, fucked up. I'm like, oh, that's that's weird because this has been a coolant issue this whole time. Yeah, but it's the old torque converter. So uh, I'll tell you what I can do. I mean, it's going to be about $1,800. Huh. And now we look at our bank account. We're like, well, we have 400 He goes, well, it's the torque converter. So, I mean, you got to decide what you want to do. He goes, however, I'll sell you this. I will trade you your van straight up for that truck out there. I'm like, okay, what truck? I look out and there's like a 1991 suburban yeah like the ones that look like an m1 tank i mean these things are crazy looking <laughs> i don't like dude i'm not i'm not doing that that thing's got like a 6.8 in it or whatever the fucking that big engine is like no i'm not doing that we're gonna get a different opinion so we get a different opinion the guy's like uh yeah your torque converter something is going on but we don't know what it is 
and it required it, it. It pretty much made us blow out a front seal. Yeah. It said that you're not getting, you're not getting coolant to your transmission, which made you blow out the front seal. I'm like, why aren't we getting coolant to that? Cause that's right off the coolant line. Let me take a look at that coolant line. I go down. The duct tape is gone. <laughs> Where do you suppose the duct tape ended up? Probably liquefied into our coolant system of the, the uh, transmission. And uh, so we ended up getting that fixed. And wouldn't you know that costs about two fifty? Yeah. So now we have hundred and fifty dollars to make it to Denver from Colby, Kansas. Now, for you listening and and you know doing your geographic uh, survey of how long that is, uh, for a five point seven liter V eight van pulling a six by twelve trailer fully loaded to about six thousand pounds, that takes about one hundred and fifty dollars. Yes. So you have just <laughs> enough money to get there. So we get there the morning of plane. And uh, we go down, and we're exhausted at this point. We go down there, and I say, all right. We go to the front gate, and we said, hey, we're 7th Echo. We're we're here to play the Bofunk stage. Like, Bofunk's not at this stop. I said, excuse me? <laughs> He's not at this stop? So you've forgotten all that cocaine and sent you to the wrong spot? Well, it, it gets interesting. And I'm like, I need to speak with somebody immediately. Kevin Lyman. No, we're not. We're not giving you to Kevin Lyman. No, tell him Luke. You know, and I'm and, and I just visualize like I'm going back to my badass ten year old yellow belt self. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you know what? I'll tell intimidate him, some. Tell him players. Luke, the ten year old yellow belt it has something to say. <laughs> you know, and this guy's like a multi millionaire concert promoter. Yeah, he, he don't give a fuck about no Luke yellow belt. Yeah, and uh, so and so they're not putting me through. And all we know is the stage is not there. We don't know why. We can't talk to anybody. And uh, so I said, well, this is another bump. Yeah. This is shitting on us again, or this is another bump. Yeah. So I was watching the bands walk in and uh, the backstage area, and they all had guitars. And we had our, our tour laminates from other like small tours we did. And, um, and these, this event staff is only vaguely looking at these tour laminates and I'm noticing this and I'm like, they're not actually holding these up and checking. And I look down at our belts and, you know, we had chain wallets and all that. And I'm like, they're not looking at any of this. Like, guys, we're going to meeting, <laughs> meeting. So we call the meeting, you know, the, the, the meeting in the office. We call, so we go, and they're like, all right, what's the plan? We have our merch guy, and I'm like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We all know I can sell the most CDs. Yeah. It is imperative that I get into this place because we have no fucking money. Yeah. If we do not get into this place, we are going to be a Denver, Colorado rock band. Yeah. Know that. <laughs> and if you guys want to see your family again, and and it, it was getting insane because while it sounds like just crazy, hysterical moment, it was. Yeah. And I was being 100% serious. If you want to see your your family again, yeah. we will get in here and you will get me in here. I said, so here's the plan. Everybody grab box of CDs. Let's get the acoustic guitars because we know we don't have a stage to play, but we have to play in front of some people. Get the acoustics. Uh, Jared, you're going to hold the CDs. You're going to hold the table. We're going to act like we're going in. And Adam, get your get your bongos. He's like, okay. 
Sure you don't want me to get to Jimbe? I don't give a fuck. Get something that makes you look more like a band than your chain wallet. Yeah, yeah. That's all I care about, bro. Let's go. And I said, here's the deal. There's event staff. It They can only catch who they can catch. Yeah. Whoever gets in, gets in. If they say, sir, can you come back here? No, you can absolutely not go back. You keep walking. You act like you don't hear them. You make it in and you go. We all got in and they, they started, Oh, sir, can you stop? Nope. Don't hear you. La 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 la. We all made it in and we all sold CDs and we all played some ratchet ass acoustic thing. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, and, and we sold probably 180 CDs and it, on average about five bucks a pop. And then that's when we realized, man, it might be a little harder to get cookies everywhere not. else not in columbus yeah and then i had to quickly analyze like why is it because columbus we felt more at home because nothing's on the line here and we were way more like you know just easy going or was it because we're just exhausted out here what are the variables and quickly i realized there's like more variables i could count yeah so i said fuck it it's a bump and we got to figure it out yeah on to the next site and uh and at every night there is a uh, the band barbecue at Warp Tour, and and you have these band barbecues, and uh, and every night you know that's the, where you network. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go to the barbecue. I'm gonna network with these guys. And I, I was just prodding around, and I'm like, hey, you know, we got invited. We're just a little band. They're like, who are you? I'm the Seventh Echo. They're like, ah, oh, we didn't even see you on any of the stages. I'm like, yeah, we're supposed to be here for Bo Funk. He goes, dude, did you hear what happened to Bo Funk? Said, and how many times can we get shit on? Pretty sure it's about to happen again. And they're like, dude, in Kansas City, there's some wild roads. And I'm like, I do remember wild like overpasses and stuff. And they're like, yeah, Bofunk Stage took a header off one of those roads. They saved like they're okay, but they were going around probably on Coke, and their stage veered off one of the overpasses and fell off. Wow. So I said, so Bofunk stage, that's no longer a thing. They said, no, dude, we're, I mean, he's still alive. He's in ICU, but yeah, that's, that's, that's no longer on the tour. Shit. So what did you do? Like we're, we're on a fucking warp tour, bro. Yeah. Yeah. We're a thousand miles away from civilization. As far as we knew it, everybody to us looked like, you know, the, the Indians looked like to Christopher Columbus out here. Yeah. You know, this was getting real, real quick. Yeah. You know, we were about to commence on our first winter without food absolutely you know and and so it was getting real and i looked at the guys and said we have some issues ahead of us he said our issues are we don't have passes to be here anymore we need money because all the money we have five thousand cds less what we sold on this first stop we have money there's cookies out here but we can't guarantee we have enough cookies to to make our our nut absolutely but the problem is we can't get into these because we don't have our pass. Yeah. Because when this guy said Kevin reports to me, he was being serious. He did. He said, all right, Bo Funk, this is your stage. How many passes do you need? He says, I need this band, this band, this band, this band. But now he's not there, so he does. there's no call for those passes. So I said, guys, we're going to Michael's. They said, what the fuck are we going to Michael's for? I said, see those wristbands that these bands have to get in? I'm making wristbands. So we go to Michael's. We make wristbands. I said, so we will have a two-prong attack. We will stay on this tour. 
We will get into every event we can. We will play acoustic wherever we can. We will network wherever we can. We will be the biggest, baddest, underground, incognito band we can be because <laughs> we, have to sell CDs. we have to sell CDs, but we also have to be big acting like we were doing something, Yeah. but we can't let the warp to our brass know we're out here because yeah. we cannot afford to get kicked off. So we have to be the biggest, baddest motherfuckers and be the most underground motherfuckers all at the same time. That's awesome. Yeah. And so we're like, whoa, that's a conundrum if there's ever one. And I yeah. said, well, fuck it. We got to do another bump. So we go, we make these colors and I'm like, okay, we, we see the orange. So I make these orange. I get these orange highlighters. I get the tape going, dude, my, my tape game with this <laughs> packaging tape is on point after I made these bands. Yeah. And, and I knew where it's a sweaty mess out there. No one's showering. No one's doing anything. And I know this white band is going to get shitty. So I made it a quick release. So at the end of the day, once we're in, we can get, we can put them away so we don't have to let them get sweat and grimy. So every day they look new while we get to the next stop. And I think the next stop was in Salt Lake City. Well, wouldn't you know they're not orange? They're green. <laughs> they're fucking green. <laughs> yeah, they're fucking highlighter green. Guys, got to go back to Michael's. So we go back to Michael's. And at this time, GPS wasn't what it is. We had yeah. a fucking Garmin. And that Garmin, updating, updating, yeah. turn left, rerouting, updating. You just can't plug in Michael's. So we're like hardcore doing this shit. So we get there. So we do green. So yeah. by that time, we figured the next venue would be whatever the fuck it is. So we just bought the whole highlighter collection thinking these are going to be highlighter collection. We get to the next one. It's dirty Brown <laughs> <laughs> back to fucking Michael's. So we did two weeks of that and, uh, and started establishing money and, uh, finally got all the way out to the Pacific Northwest. And, and we started making enough friends at that time that we were just, we were just going in and we realized at this time, the event staff is the most clueless people. They're, they're not privy to any information. So as long as we didn't disrupt their job and we didn't disrupt the brass of warp tour, we offended, we could run the place. Yeah. And that's what we were. That's awesome. So we were effectively the candy salesman at my poor elementary school of warp tour. And we get up to this beautiful place called the gorge at George Washington. And so this is the furthest venue we are from home. I think it's uh Thinking back, it's it's about an hour south south of Seattle, and beautiful. It's like if you could put Jermaine Amphitheater right at the edge of the Grand Canyon, it is what it is. Mixed with like red rocks, you know, that is what it is. It is just badass. And what was that called again? It was called uh, the Gorge, the Gorge at George George oh. Washington, and uh, so we get to this place. And I remember we get there late and the, the event, it was at some campground because all the kids go out and camp and the camp staff was like, uh, who are you guys? We're like, we're on warp tour. They're like, yeah, but who are you? We're like Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. They're like, <laughs> yeah, I don't see it, but there's a lot of bands we don't see. All right. Willy Wonka. We'll just pencil you in. <laughs> and we were just fucking with them. Cause we were like, we can't tell them seventh echo. Cause they obviously got a list. Yeah. So we got to tell them something crazy. Yeah. And it worked. So they're like, yeah, pull right there. You'll see the line of buses. Just follow them. So we go to the buses and, uh, we get out and there's, uh, there's Claudio from Coheed and Cambria and he's taking a shower in a little bag shower. He's got like one of those solar showers. Yeah. And he's outside with his big puffy ass hair. And I don't know if you know who the guy is, but he, imagine he's puffy like, uh, 
I don't know if he's like Mexican or what he is, but imagine a puffy haired nerd guy with like a giant <laughs> perm, Mexican perm or whatever. And so we see him, we start networking with those guys and we just realize like, Hey man, we're, we just got to make our own way no matter what. Yeah. And, uh, they're making their way, you know, and they were a big band at the time. And so that's what it was. It was just, everybody's making their own way. And, you know, and it's it sort of for the next two years on warp tour, we just decided like, no matter what happened, even though we got kept on getting invited back, no matter what happened, we had to keep on making our way. And uh, so we did 06 warped. Um, we did, then we did 07 warp tour with a, uh, the guy named Roman Atwood, who is now like a YouTube mega star. And uh, his passion was doing like jackass type videos, but it was like a PG version, you know? Yeah. So we went out with those guys that year. Cause we met those guys. They were a big fan of us. And, uh, and we became friends with those guys. And I said, Hey, you want to sell your DVDs to a crowd that buys DVDs, the fucking warp tour, but they weren't a band, so they couldn't play. So they said, well, we'll just get, we'll just buy a merchandise spot. Fair enough. So they went out and start touring. And I said, well, Hey, anytime we can't get in, we'll just, can we just check up with you guys? So that fuck. Yeah. So we went out and there's several times like through our networking that we were able to be cool enough to the right people to say, Hey, you guys want to take, we, we had one of these bands cancel cause they broke up. Uh, we have an open spot on Ernie ball stage, or we have an open spot on the local hope stage or whatever have you stage. So we were always that band and we always made it known to all the area people. Hey, we don't want to let this be our crutch, but we were supposed to be out here with Bofunk. We're not going to make any waves. Well, by that time we were selling about 300 CDs a day and that in itself made waves. Yeah. So Oh seven at the end of Oh seven came around. Kevin Lyman found his way to us. We're like, I know you. And he comes out, he takes off his glasses and he looks like a raccoon because the guy is just sunbeaten, you know, and he takes off his, you know, he has spied, you know, skateboarder glasses and he takes them off and i know he's getting serious because the the tan line is so hardcore and i know <laughs> this guy does not take his glasses off for nothing yeah takes the glass off he says what the fuck are you guys doing i said i don't know we're here to see some fucking <laughs> awesome bands he goes no cut to shit i said well i told him this a couple years ago you invited us out we played we played for bofunk he invited us out uh, never heard from the guy since. He's like, yeah, well, Bo Funk in 05, that was his last tour. He wrecked his thing. He would yada, yada. Um, he goes, but you guys were out last year. I said, yeah. And you're out this year. Yeah. He goes, how are you getting in? Like, and, and there, we came to the crossroads because I'm like, do I want to tell him and sound like a genius and get kicked off, but be the genius as we yeah, walk yeah, away? Yeah. Or do I want to plead ignorance and just be the ignorant people? And walk off acting like he thought we were ignorant. Yeah. And I opted for a hybrid. I'm like, listen, man. I said, I'm just going to lay it all out there. We we want to make it. This tour, it's not really us, but we're selling 300 CDs a day. He goes, oh, I know. I know of it. And he goes, but why? What What drives you guys? You don't have a stage every day. I said, yeah, but the networking... It's all fucking cool. I said, we're getting in. We have, I'm making wristbands. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disturbing anybody. <laughs> so you kept I said, making wristbands for two years. Yeah. I said, I'm just making wristbands. He goes, are you, are you serious? That's working? I said, yeah. 
He goes, can you show me? I'm like, I don't really want to because <laughs> we keep them put away so they don't get ratchet. Yeah. And he goes, show me. So I showed him and he's like, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck yeah. Yeah. So it became like the lunch lady again, you know, like yeah. the admiration, like, whoa, these guys had their stage fall off a fucking bridge in Kansas city. Two, two years later, they're back here fucking at Michael's making wristbands. Yeah. That's awesome. And he goes, listen, there's a lot of bands out here that don't want you guys out here because you're not supposed to be out here and you're selling 300 CDs a day. They're not selling 50 CDs a day. Big bands, some of the big bands, they're not selling that. And we're all still not getting paid. No bands. MXPX, they're not getting paid. We weren't getting paid. Offspring, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. not getting paid. No one's getting paid. And, and so he looked at me, he goes, you can keep on doing what you're doing until you can't do what you're doing. I'm not going to tell you no, because I love it. Yeah. He goes, but there's a lot of people that don't love it. And I want you to know that they don't love it. And I'm not going to tell you who they are, but they don't fucking like it. And I'm like, oh, maybe going to the band barbecues isn't a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody wants. And, uh, and so it got to the point where I was like, well, this might be our last year on Warp Tour. And, uh, we went out and we found other cool, you know, we met Story of the Year out there, went out and did some promo stuff with them. And uh, met a couple of, you know, good networking, but that was, we, we decided to go back on 08. And at that time, no one was buying CDs anymore. And, uh, and like no one. And by this time, everybody was doing what we were doing to sell their CDs. So the first year there was us and another band doing it. And the other band that was doing it, they were actually genius because they went to Home Depot and they picked up all the Mexicans waiting for jobs. Wow. And they said, we will give you $20 a day if you sell us 50 CDs a day. And that was their way to get a, a record deal. And they're now, they're now they're called Mayday Parade. I think they were called The Distance or something like that before that. But uh, they're now you know a well-known band. And they hired like 20 Mexicans, got the vans, everything. And we're selling all of them, paying the Mexicans a wage that they agreed to. And to do all this stuff. And they were, and it was just us and them, you know, but by 08, everybody saw that I was working. And so everybody was doing it. Well, now everybody was over it. Kids, they were over it. They've been there. They've seen it. They're like, no, I don't want to listen to your fucking band. Yeah. Dude, for the eighth time, fuck it you. It doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So they were, they were doing all that. And so at, in 08, I'm like, okay. Now we got all the variables to why no one's buying our CDs. We got it watered down to that. No one's buying CDs. Now it's not us. Now it's not anything else. Now it's two variables. No one's buying CDs and everybody's over all these people asking them to buy their CDs. They're over it. Yeah. So you mix those two things. I said, guys, this is no longer profitable. we got to find our own way. And uh, that's when we start getting into the poker thing. So you guys all played poker? Um, my my bass player is the one that got me into it. Um, I was always a math guy. I mean, business acumen, and uh, and so I was always a number guy. And uh, and when the Texas Hold'em boom came out in '03, you know, my drummer loved it, and but they just liked uh, excuse to drink with their family and friends. And I was like, this 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 game sucks. Fifty two cards. Oh, you got a flush draw. Oh, nine cards come twice. You can't do the math that you're putting in all your money to hit that. So yeah. you're only going to get a 25% return over time. Yeah. 
and I'm just seeing this stuff. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> We're drinking beer and having fun. I'm like, yeah. you don't understand what I'm talking about. And you're playing the odds. Yeah. I'm like, there's only 52 cards. It's like, yeah, obviously four of every kind. I'm like, you have a flush draw. There's only 13 suited cards. Well, if you see two right there, you have two in your hand. It means you got nine remaining divided by the remainder of the cards. It's easy math. Why aren't you doing that? Why are you putting so much money in to hit that? And now you're doing it with the 10 high flush draw. What if he's got a flush draw? Yeah. You know, and I was quickly just analyzing. I'm like, this game sucks. You're suck. You guys are a bunch of fags. Like, I'm just not doing this. This, this is the dumbest. This is the most fucking idiotic game. None of us are doing this. Yeah. And, uh, but it got to the point where, where after it would be 08. So the 08 warp tour, we quickly realized we're not doing that. And, uh, and we do this tour, uh, breaking Benjamin's breaking at the time. Pardon the pun. And we go out and I'm listening to, I'm at this point, I've networked to every corner of the contiguous United States. Yeah. And I, I get a hold of this guy's number named Freddie Fabri. He was the breaking Benjamin tour manager. And I said, if I could only get in touch with this guy, I bet I could network with this guy. And I bet we could go out there and sell CDs maybe to their fans. Yeah. Because I think rock bands at the time were still buying punk rock kids were no, they weren't doing it. But I said, if we can, if we can, we know the two variables, which, which results in a negative equity, which is too, too much, too many people. And there's the point where they were over it and they just weren't buying CDs. I said, what if we eliminated the competition of people pushing CDs and just see if people are still buying CDs. So we go out there, I get a hold of the guy. And I go up to the guy and I said, yo, man, I'm, my name is Luke Edwards. Uh, I'm with this band called seventh Echo. You never heard of us for sure. I said, uh, we love you guys though. And I said, let me tell you how I can help you. And he goes, what the fuck are you talking about? And the guy is smoking like a, just a giant doobie <laughs> guy that loves getting roasted still to this day. We're still friends to this day on Facebook. Freddie, Yeah. And uh, I said, he goes, how the fuck could you help me? I don't even know you. Dude, I got to get my band on stage. And I'm like, hear me out. I said, we do a lot of promotion outside of these shows. And one thing we see are these fucking scabby looking dudes pulling t-shirts out of their crotch and trying to hawk them. That's not good for your business. And I know bands and I know people aren't buying CDs. And I know that you guys don't have a 360 record deals yet. That's not even a thing at this time. So I know you're making your money on t-shirts. $45 $45 t-shirts. Guess what? This jackass is selling them for 20 out of his dick. Yeah. No one wants to buy somebody's dick t-shirt for 20 when they can go into a, uh, a concert and buy them for 45 is what you guys think. That's actually not how it goes. Yeah. They are willing to spend 25 bucks instead of spend that on beer and get this guy's dick t-shirt. Yeah. So I said, so check this out. Let us sell our CDs, not your CDs. Let us sell our CDs to your fans maybe play acoustic at some of these shows. Let it, we won't disrupt when it come, when the doors open, we're done. I said, we will stay out of your way. He goes, okay. What, what's in it for us? I will tell you where these counterfeiters are and I will help you with the cops deal with these counterfeiters. Yeah. And that's, you're going to see that in your bottom line day one. Yeah. 
He goes, I'll give you one day. Okay. We see the counterfeiters. We get them all kicked out. They get all, all of them get arrested. All their shit gets. And not only do they get arrested as they were getting arrested. I told Freddie, it would be a good idea if you actually uh, confiscate their merch because their merch is the money they put up to sell. So they could get arrested in a holding tank, get let go, go to the next venue, do the same thing until yeah. they're not arrested and just make that money. I said, you got to hit them where it hurts, and that's taking their merch. <laughs> so uh, he gets into it. He gets their merch, and day one, they see the the uptick. They're like, holy shit, we just sold 300 more shirts. That's fucking awesome. Is there Was this guy right? How could this guy be right? I've never met this guy. Who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. Next day, we're at the next next place. Uh, it's down in like uh, West Virginia. It was like Big Sandy Superstore Arena or something. Yeah. He finds me. He seeks me out. Finds me. He's like, yo, man, you guys want to play? Like, what do you mean play? He goes, do you guys want to play? Like, y'all play. <laughs> like, dude, we're, we're, we live to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he's like, all right, do some acoustic shit. You know, but yeah, and, and and at this point now he's using us. He's like, do some acoustic set, but if you see those fucking dudes, I'm like, yeah, trust me, we got it. So it got to the point where kids aren't buying CDs to the to the amount, but people are digging it even more. So now we're selling about uh we're at this time we have two records out and we're selling them both collectively for ten bucks. Or donation. Yeah. And that that was cool because sometimes people give you more than ten bucks. Yeah. So we always said donation, minimum ten dollars. We we appreciate. We play with them. So we're making enough money. So it's my guitarist and I. We we decide the rest of the guys, they're like, well, we just can't sell CDs. This isn't our thing. But my guitarist and I, we load up all our CDs in the Honda Civic, the acoustics. We're going out, we're fucking we're jamming. We're meeting people going all over. So we did that. We get a bunch of money in the bank. We come back and uh put it all in our US bank account. And uh, we're making a name for ourselves. We get this lady. Her name is Melissa. She uh, she contacts us and she goes, you guys are the biggest thing in Ohio. I said, yeah, I'd like uh, I like to think we are. She goes, how would you like to do a full summer concert tour? I like campgrounds, like big, like festivals. I'm like that's badass. She goes, well, so here's how it works. Here's what we're doing for all the bands. All the bands, they pay their purse. They pay per spot. I said, like, like, why? That's weird. They said, well, effectively, all we're doing is guaranteeing you're the spot. Uh, you're putting up money on the front end to lock in your spot. So we know you have skin in the game. Yeah. So when we go to promote the show, we know we're selling them a show that where the bands are going to show up. I said, okay, that's a little weird. But I thought about it. I'm like, well, how many spots do you have? They're like, we're, we're doing 48 shows. And I said, okay, well, let me look at the logistics. I look at the logistics and I see it all. Now, this lady, she's managing another band we're friends with. Yeah. And I'm like, well, is this Melissa Chick? Is she, is she legit? She goes, oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah, her booking staff, they're, they're awesome. Dark Angel booking. I'm like, so they're legit. Okay, cool. Uh, so she, I said, okay, send me the contracts. So she sends me the contracts. And this is an 08. So I get this email, and it looks like it's from PayPal. I'm like, oh, okay, PayPal. So it's like log in to pay your invoice. So I go to log in to pay my invoice. Well, this is a Trojan. So this is not PayPal. This is her site to get my info. And she sniped all of our money and 
So all of the money we saved from the Breaking Benjamin Three Days wow. Grace tour, um, she got all of that money and overdrew our account because we had over overdraft protection. So the guy that wants to come up and be our band manager at the time, because we're getting to the point where we're starting to need more help. Uh, he's manager at U.S. Bank. Calls me the next morning and says, uh, Luke. I said, yeah, Dan, what's wrong? He goes, yeah, so all that Breaking Benjamin money, I mean, what did you spend that on? I said, I haven't spent it on anything. I said, we have, uh, I said, they're actually, you know, take that back. I said, we're putting up like $6,000 in this this one big tour thing. I said, but other than that, we're going to get all that back at the end. And it's just a pay-to-play festival thing, and it's well worth it. You know, if you look at, you know, $150 a day or whatever, well worth what we're going to make in CD sales, et yeah. cetera. And he goes, no, the problem is it, your account's overdrawn. So I'm freaking out. I go down to U.S. Bank. I look at my account. They pull up a statement. I see the statement. I said, what the fuck is going on? And there's no tracking of this. All it says is I spent X amount of dollars on this person. So it looks, for all intents and purposes, it looked like I bought like a mail-order bride from fucking Russia. You know, I spent all this money. They couldn't tell what I spent this money on. It just looks like I authorized the expenditure. Wow. And that was all it took for them to not be able to give me protection under fraud. And at the time, Trojans and fishing wasn't a big thing. No one yeah, knew of it. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I was, like, seeing red. And they're like, when can you pay this back? I'm like, they wiped us out, and I'm $5,000 in the fucking hole. Yeah. I work at a pizza shop. Yeah. What do you want me to do? They're like, well, we need this money. And they're like, or we got to get the FBI involved because it's over $5,000. I'm like, the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, I just had all of our money taken, and you want me to pay it back in like some short term? Let me call my boss. Hey, Brenda, when can I do another catering gig for $5,000 that I make the five? Oh, never? Okay, that's your answer, <laughs> asshole. Never is your answer. And I got into it. And uh, and at this time, going in from, you know, 03 to 08, you know, I, I was seeing poker as something I hated, but it was sort of a means to an end. Like, I'm just going to go take these guys 50 bucks real quick because they're just stupid. They, they don't know. Yeah. They don't know math. And it was something I was good at. And uh, and you parcel that with being able to read people. It was just all the things I, I was just really good at. And I was yeah. like, I'm just going to do this. Well, I told Brenda, the my old boss, I was like, okay, I got to go. And I'm going to be gone for an unbeknownst amount of time. I told my wife at the time, uh, I said, I'm going to leave. I'm going to be gone for an unbeknownst amount of time. She goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I have a little bit of money. And I know of a casino. And she's like, what? You don't go to casinos. I'm like, I play poker. Since when? I'm like, listen, I hate this stupid ass game, <laughs> but I can beat these assholes. Yeah. And I'm not going to play against the house. I don't want to play blackjack. I want to beat these guys. Yeah. And there's a 1-3 no limit game going on in the Argosy Casino down in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. And I said, I will be gone until I get this money. So I played for three straight days. Uh, turned a couple hundred dollars into 5000 and came back and walked into the front doors of USA Bank or US Bank and had the cash and threw that shit all over the floor. <laughs> Said, you motherfuckers, pick it up. From that day forward, I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have anything in my system, in my name, 
because I was so, I was, I was just fucking, I was spent. I was over it. I said, I'm not going to give it to you guys. You pick it up. I'll, I'll figure out my own. And then I had the reckoning like, oh, well, I made that money real quick. That was actually pretty cool. Yeah. Why am I working at pizza when I can't get these, these jobs? Yeah. And so that was the start of the poker career and uh, started grinding. I was grinding down there and you know, at the time it, it was, it was like three and a half hours away from my home. And I was, I was going down for the weekend. I was like, okay, Jan, I'm going down. I'm going to play this until I can get, you know, $600 for the week. And I thought, man, you know, making $600 doing what I love, you know, or you know, doing what I love was not poker. Doing what I love was not being attached to a job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I said, that'd be awesome. So I was doing that. It was working. You know, we had a, uh, we had a nice little thing going and, uh, and it was just working out good, man. And so I quickly realized that there's a lot of idiots out there that think money is the, uh, no, we're get rich quick. Yeah. It was like a get rich quick. Yeah. People, people didn't realize it was a game with math and they think, well, anybody can make their money this way. It's luck. Yeah. Yeah, It's not all luck. Right. But that's, that's what the people and and 95% of the people that play poker are losers. Yeah. And of those people, those 95% all attribute the success of the 5% toward luck. And they don't realize that is the roadblock they suffer. You're suffering that roadblock. And until you get past that, that's your bump in the road. Yeah. I've gotten past my several bumps in the road. Now that's a bump you got to figure out. And until then, I'm going to take that money. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that's what it turned out. And, uh, and got really cool, man. So, so you made, so you made good money playing poker, made a living, playing made a poker. living playing yeah. poker. And then, uh, did you, did you back players at one point? Yeah. Too? I ended up getting into the backing game. Uh, if you don't mind, can we pause? I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Take this. Okay, guys, that was part one. Part two is going to be coming out soon. We didn't realize it was two hours and 20 minutes. So we, uh, promptly ended the show cause Luke runs a business and I had some stuff I had to do as well. Um, anyways, so that podcast is brought to you by Junction. So check out Junction on Amazon.com by Cody Schlegel. Uh, it's one of my favorite books. Another man from the Rust Belt wrote that book. He's one of my best friends. Well, he is my best friend. So Cody Schlegel wrote that book. Also, um, naturesimagefarm.com right now with code word sample, you can get 10% off anything in the tree stock or any... Uh, plants, food plants um, at naturesimagefarm.com. And they are also selling small cell bee nukes that are available with pickup and use code word sample and get 10% off. With that being said, guys, look forward to bringing you part two and hope you guys make it a great day. Thank you so much.